I have a very special episode for you tonight. This is most likely the most requested interview that I have had so far. The Claws Corner welcomes author, screenwriter, and motivational speaker, Andrea Perrin. All of this resulted from her experiences with ghosts, demons, UFOs, and aliens on a little farmhouse that she grew up on in Rhode Island. The movie The Conjuring was based on her family's life. Please welcome the always interesting and the always fun, Andrea Perrin. Andrea, how are you? I'm great. Oh, it's wonderful to join you guys. It's, we're going to have a wonderful time. Oh, I yeah. know you have lots of questions, so, you know, just uh, rapid fire them. And I've got uh, plenty to share with your listeners. I want to thank everybody that tunes in to this. Um, you know, people think that The Conjuring was the end-all, be-all of our story. In many respects, it was uh, only the beginning. Um, the story itself is uh, <laughs> covers uh, a decade plus uh, from the time my mother found the farm until the time that we left it in 1980. Uh, so I spent seven years of my life tethered to a keyboard uh, to tell the whole true story. And when James Wan, uh, the director of the film, read the book, he said, uh-uh, we're not filming in Rhode Island. We're not going to Rhode Island. We're not going to look at the farmhouse. We're not going. No, absolutely not. Um, it uh, freaked him out so much. Bless his little heart. He's so he's so sweet. He's a very sweet man. Uh, that um, they literally changed the story to make it less terrifying because they thought that the real true story would run people right out of the theater. Wow. I didn't think there was any point in making a film if nobody stayed to watch it. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. There's something similar with Jaws. I guess when the first came out in 1975, Steven Spielberg it was, was, was at one of the premieres, and he saw somebody run out, and he freaked out. He goes, oh, my God, they don't like my movie? I guess they went out to throw up because <laughs> they were so disturbed by uh, the Ben Gardner scene where the head – so he, at first he goes, yeah. oh, my God, people are running out of the theater. And they're like, no, we just – I couldn't handle it. So – um, I yeah, think it was intense. It was very intense. I would consider Jaws a horror movie, and yet, as well made as it was, the book was even better. Hmm. But you know, that's often the case. Oh yeah, you, know, that, was... uh, you can't in, in in a book or a series of books like my trilogy. You get lost in it. You you become part of that world. It's you know you take it to bed with you at night. You wake up with it beside you in the morning. It, uh, it you become engrossed. Um, and you know, it probably, I don't know how long it takes to read the trilogy. I only know how long it took to write it, but, um, uh, for the time that you spend with it, it's a magic carpet ride. It's unlike anything that's ever been put in print. There are many, many paranormal groups around the country now that uh, won't bring a new member in until they've read it because they consider it preparatory. Uh, so that folks know what they're getting into and what the dangers can be. Well, actually, that was the first question I wanted to talk to you about, The Conjuring. Now, your life, obviously, like you just mentioned, was the inspiration for the movie. Is there any truth to that movie at all? Oh, there are elements of truth to it. Um, and there are what I call cosmic kisses in it. Uh, the things that I saw in it the first time I watched the film that made me realize that it was supposed to be precisely what it was. Uh, the most striking of which is uh, the, the young lady that plays me in the film, Shanley Caswell, she is delightful. 
uh, and she um, had her own room as, as I had my own room growing up. And when the camera pans around into her room for the first time, there's a picture of a, it's a folk art drawing of a white cat sitting on a patchwork pillow. I have that picture sitting about three feet away from me. It's been with me since I was 13 years old. We lived at the farm and we went out to a flea market. I found that picture and fell in love with it. It was 50 cents and my mom didn't have 50 cents to buy it. It was the day before my birthday. So her girlfriend, Fran, bought it for me and I've had it ever since. There's no conceivable way out of, uh, you know, the entire division of Warner Brothers pictures that has props as big as city blocks that they chose that one single image uh, by accident. I just don't believe that. I mean, it knocked me back in my chair. And I had my little sister Cindy with me. We went out to California. Um, Warner Brothers graciously uh, brought us out for a preview of the film um, three months before it opened. And uh, Mrs. Warren came with her son-in-law, and I brought my sister Cindy along. And the four of us are sitting in this vacuumous theater watching this film for the first time. And when I saw that image, I mean, Cindy turned to me. She said, don't you have that? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Um, and, uh, and I said the same thing to her when she goes running through the kitchen with a set of um, uh, wind chimes that we had an identical set of wind chimes to that that was hanging on our porch. And she goes and runs and hangs it on the porch at their house. That was not in the book. Uh, the dog dying as soon as we got to the house, you know, within days of moving into the house. That was not in the book. It was so sad. It was such a, a terrible episode in our lives and how he died um, was just so gruesome. I didn't put it in the trilogy. Wow. But the first thing they have is the, their family dog, Sadie, dying. Our, our dog's name was actually Schultz. And um, he uh, he had a terrible accident right after we moved to the farm. And it was, you know, the beginning of a wild ride of accidents. Um, but there was really no such thing. There was a, a pervasive negative energy that would rear its ugly head uh, without a moment's notice uh, on that property, not just in the house, out in the barn and on the land. Uh, there was an energy there uh, that we had to hold at bay uh, just to be able to survive at the farm, and we weren't always successful with it. Now, in the movie, it seems like they make it seem like your dog knew right away because they usually say pets can recognize things that people can't see. Was that yes. that happened? Did your dog was was he was your dog afraid to go into the house originally, and then you're like, what's wrong with the dog? Yes. Okay. So wow. he was afraid to go in the house. So he that's not, something. We had to drag him into the house. The so that's something that the movie got there. right. Now, what about in the movie? It portrays your sister with a little toy, and she could see a boy in that in that with no, that toy. No, that's all made up. Okay. Most of that film is made up in the minds of two very nice men named Chad and Carrie Hay. And what they did, you know, the film when it opens, it says based on the case files of Ed and Lorraine Warren. Well, that's true. Uh, you know, the film was 
predominantly based on their case files. But not only were their case files inaccurate, but then they took those case files and, and you know, kind of cherry-picked that information along with what they got out of my books and then amalgamated it into a whole third film, a whole third story that uh, really bears no resemblance to what actually happened. And when they tried to integrate specific events from the true story into the screenplay, uh, they they had that screenplay sent, according to them, went back to them seven times uh, from the brass at Warner Brothers that said, tone this down, tone it down, take that out. Did they ever so, contact you? Yes. Oh, yeah. I was a consultant on the film, and uh, I spoke with them at length. Uh, we went out to the set. They spoke with every member of my family. Uh, you know, and uh, yeah, they they knew what they were dealing with. They were just afraid, and they had every reason to be afraid because some very very bizarre things happened on that set uh, uh, while we were there, and then subsequently. Um, it seemed our presence seemed to trigger uh, the events. Prior to that, Mrs. Warren had been out to the set, but there were no reports of unusual activity while she was there. While we were there, uh, all hell broke loose. <laughs> now, where did they actually Cindy. film the <laughs> It's all her fault. How dare her. <laughs> now, where did they film the movie? If they didn't want to film uh, it in Rhode Island. Film, no, they wouldn't. And... Um, it was uh, in Wilmington, North Carolina. So, of course, the topography doesn't look like Rhode Island at all. Uh, it's obviously in the south. Uh, it doesn't resemble the state of Rhode Island at all. If you've ever been to Rhode Island, it's, you know, black, rich dirt and <laughs> uh, very old trees, a lot of fruit trees, a lot of, uh, you know, there's no Spanish moss hanging in the in the trees. Uh, so the river that they had going by uh, out the back of the house that, that James Wan chose when he was scouting sites. Uh, the water was black, um, and the water up in New England with the river that ran through the back of our property was crystal clear. You could see all the stones at the bottom of the water. Uh, you know, I mean, but these are things that uh, I guess filmmakers consider superfluous, that... They don't really matter. They don't detract or add uh, to, you know, the, the forwarding, the forward momentum of the story. Uh, so, and not something that anybody would really much think about, except, of course, someone like me, who's like, that's not authentic. No, that's not authentic, you know. Um, sure. But, uh, you know, overall, I think, it, it gave the right and proper impressions overall. Um, as I've said before, in the grand sweeping strokes, it leaves people with three impressions. Good conquers evil. Love conquers fear. The Perrin family endured an extreme haunting that they all survived. You know, that's all true. And those are the impressions that the audience is left with at the end of the film. Now, what was your family's reaction when they saw the movie? Well, my mother was appalled that uh, they represented our family as somehow godless heathens when nothing could have been further from the truth. 
I thought she'd be upset about the exorcism scene because, of course, there was no exorcism in our house. Yeah. Uh, my mother was not possessed. My mother was attacked. And the reason that she was attacked is because Ed and Lorraine Warren brought a medium to our house who didn't know what she was doing and committed what I consider spiritual malpractice and threw open wide the doors to the netherworld in an extremely haunted house. And my mother was the weakest link at the table at the time. And she's the one that took the brunt of it. And whatever, whatever it was, pure, unadulterated evil, uh, spoke in a language that was not of this world, that came right through her. Uh, the chair she was in was levitated. And in a fraction of a second, a split second, she was thrown in the chair from the middle of our dining room into the middle of our parlor, and every person in that house heard her spell at that floor. We all thought she was dead. It was horrible. It was the worst moment of my life. I never, ever want to see anything like that again as long as I live, and I thank God every day that my mother has no memory of it. Now, a question for you, because you mentioned Ed and Lorraine Warren. For people who don't know, they were Connecticut ghost hunters. Now, is it true that in the movie they portray it that your mother went to one of their seminars and she sought them out? But from what I heard, and I'm, you can correct me if I'm wrong, didn't they just show up at your house? Yes, did, they so, did. They just showed up at our house. My mother never sought them out. She had no idea who they were when they came knocking on our kitchen door about 7 o'clock at night, the night before Halloween in 1973. Wow. So now another question for you, because I, I love this story. I've met your father and I met one of your sisters, and your father loves telling this story, which you it's part, part of the seance. Tell me your father's reaction when the, Ed, Ed and Lorraine brought the uh, medium to your house. <laughs> oh, he was not a happy camper. Um, there's, there's really no way. I mean, you've met dad when he's smiling and he's happy and he's with his own kind and, you know, it's a love fest and, you know, you know how it is with these paracons. It's yeah. just great. Uh, you know, being with our own kind, it's like, it's just great. You can say anything, you can express yourself about the netherworld in any way you want and nobody's going to have a problem with it, you know, but out in the real world, uh, it's uh, a little different. You just don't know necessarily what fear-based reactions you're going to get or uh, people that just, you know, dismiss it out of hand as a bunch of malarkey. Um, but uh, my father's got a temper, <laughs> and it's loud and it's ugly, and I'm about the only person on earth that can shout louder than him. <laughs> uh, and sometimes it takes that to snap him out of it when he's livid. Now, thankfully, that doesn't happen very often. And usually it's a stupid something that will trigger it. You know, not anything huge, just something really little like, I don't like how many trucks are coming along in front of this house all of a sudden. What's this all of a sudden? And he just kind of loses it. You know what I'm like, Dad, <laughs> really? There's so much crap going on in the world and you're mad about a couple of tow trucks? You know, really? Really? <laughs> you know? And, and then he'll just look at me like, oh, okay, you're right, you're right. You know, and he'll chill out. But that night, there was no chilling him out. Well, I don't blame uh, him. Because when they showed up, 
they showed up the night of the seance in August of 74. Uh, they had uh, photographers with the big, big, you know, remember the old huge cameras, the big state-of-the-art cameras when oh, yeah. cinematography was just really getting going. You had to prop up on your shoulder and it weighed 30 pounds. Um, they had a couple of cinematographers, uh, Mr. Warren did when he came to the door and then Lorraine came up behind him and she had an audio tech. She had the cinematographers, uh, with them and, uh, a medium and a priest. And my father was like, uh, he had a WTF moment without actually <laughs> saying it. I don't think he needed this to actually say it. <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah, after, after, you know. when they come over to your house like that and they perform a seance and that happens to your mother, I kind of understand your father's point. I would be a little mad myself. Yes. Did they, well, he, did... it took them a while to talk him into it. You know, I mean, and Lorraine said something she should not have said. And that was, you know, she just stared at him. I was standing in the dining room when it happened. I'll never forget the look on his face. I'm telling you. She's lucky she was a woman. <laughs> That's all I can say. Ed, Ed wasn't so lucky. <laughs> yeah, Ed was not so lucky. Um, but she looked up at him and she said, if you really love your wife, you'll let us do this. Wow. And he was wild. And Ed had to take him out of the room and the priest followed uh, out into the summer kitchen, which they had um, started converting over into a bedroom because the, their original bedroom downstairs in the center of the house was so active that they couldn't sleep in it. I mean, the bed was moved every morning. All the doors were left open and pushed and stuff. I mean, it was just bizarre what was going on in that room. So um, dad was um, reconstituting the old summer kitchen and, and getting it ready. So Ed took him off in there, and they were gone for a while, probably about a half hour, 45 minutes. Uh, when they came out, my father was uh, sullen, um, and uh, I don't know what they said to him. I only heard what the conversation was prior to going in there, but uh, he was just ashen gray when they came out. And uh, so they he didn't want to participate at all in, in the seance, uh, but he was not stopping them from going forward. And the medium, Mary, and uh, Lorraine got on either side of my mother's elbows and kind of lifted her up out of the chair she was in. At that point, the negative energy in the house was so profuse that <laughs> she was practically catatonic. Uh, there was just no um, getting through to her, and she was um, shutting down, you know, for all intents and purposes, shutting down. Uh, it was bad. It was really bad. And, and then when all hell broke loose in the house and the table levitated and all the candles blew out and, you know, Cindy was uh, in my arms collapsing under her own weight and I was going down with her and it was, we were hiding so that we could watch what was happening. Um, and when my mother got tossed into the parlor, my father went to run after her and Ed grabbed his arm to stop him. And my father turned around and cold cocked him right in the face, broke his nose, and took that man right to the ground. <laughs> the only reason I'm laughing is because I've heard your father tell that story to me. And the way he says it, he goes, I still got the scar to prove it. Like The way he says it is hilarious, even though the event itself was not hilarious. But just your father has a – he has a very – just like you, a very nice way of telling a story. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, well, it's easy to do that when you've lived it. Oh, my you God, know, yeah. It's not like something you have to memorize. It's already seared into your brain. Uh, every instant, every moment, every sound, every smell, every, you know, the, the, the tone and tenor of people's voices, the shift of light, you know, everything um, is just permanently etched in memory. So all I have to do is just recall that night. And every time I do, it's like it, it takes me right back to it. Uh, you know, and I've learned to dissociate the emotion from it the way I used to. I mean, I used to cry when I told that story, yeah. uh, you know, not that many years ago. It took me a while to be able to recount it and desensitize to it and, and speak about it objectively instead of subjectively. Uh, because it was uh, a very, very emotional ordeal for everyone that was there. I mean, the priest freaked out. Father Frank was his name, and he freaked out. He was standing in the corner of the dining room, just trembling from head to toe, uh, just as literally as white as a sheet of paper. Um, it was uh, the Mary Pastorella, who was the medium. She collapsed on the table, and she was unconscious. And Lorraine's, you know, off on the floor beside my mother. And Ed's on the floor in the dining room with his nose bleeding. And, oh, my God, it was chaos. It was bedlam. Wow. It was nuts. And my father threw them out of the house. And they came back. Oh, gosh. They came back in the fall. Uh, came to the door. But my mom did not let them in the house. Understandably, uh, and they came back to to see if she was still alive because when she when they left, they didn't know what she was. Wow! Did they make sure your father was not home at first? <laughs> yes, <laughs> they made sure my father was not home after yeah. they um, after they left after the first séance. Um, did the did your your mother came back to normal slowly, or what happened after um, your father kicked everyone out? Uh well, it, it took a while for, you know, he was doing uh, monitoring all her vital signs. And, mm -hmm. um, of course, I'm sure she had a concussion. Uh, he knew enough, you know, being uh, in the Navy and, and all that. He knew there was mm -hmm. nothing that could be done for that except to, you know, make her comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, and he was monitoring her eyes, you know, opening her eyes and checking her pupils and, and all of that, uh, it took a while for her to kind of, you know, come back out of it. And when she did, she had no memory of any of it, not any of it from when, like, she didn't even know that the Warrens had been to the house. It was oh. quite strange. Did the spirits um, settle down and leave her alone to recover after uh, the medium and the Warrens were kicked out? Well, she... Um, she was in she was in the midst of a, a downward spiral. She was losing weight, not eating correctly, you know, trying to live on coffee and cigarettes and uh, just not taking care of her own health the way that she should. Um, and she was uh, waif-like, just really waif-like. Um, and, of course, naturally, all of us were very, very concerned about her. Uh, and it was a few months later... Um, after this event that um, I had in, in some ways school had started back and uh, it was in the fall. I remember that it was cold because I built a fire and mom came out of her room about 11 o'clock, 10.30 or 11 o'clock at night 
and I was sitting up. I had made dinner for the girls. I'd made a beef stew. Um, I had uh, gotten them all off to bed after dinner and gotten cleaned up and had the house shut down, and it was my turn to do my homework. So uh, Mom came out of her room, and she told me she was hungry, and I was delighted. She wanted to know what I had made for dinner. She'd been sleeping all day. Uh, just really exhausted, not, and the, her energy was just being drained from her. Um, and so uh, I do agree with the Warrens that if there is such a thing as oppression from a spirit, my mother was suffering that. Sure, uh, and because it's... the spirit that was threatening her basically told her, "If you don't get out, I'll get you from within." Um, so, I mean, not verbatim, but, you know, that was the message clearly. Sure. Um, and so anyway, mom said to me that she was hungry and she asked me to make a short pot of coffee. And I, I remember distinctly saying, mom, you know, it's late. You want coffee? And she laughed and said it was nectar of the gods. It was good 24 <laughs> hours a day. Now your and, mother, uh, oh, sorry. That's okay. She, I went into the kitchen. Uh, and, and got some food for her. And I had to walk through the dining room to get into the kitchen and then go in the pantry. And, you know, microwaves hadn't been invented yet. So I had to warm up the stew, you know, pull some out and warm some up on the stove and make some coffee. So I was gone for a few minutes at least. Um, and in the interim, she threw another log on the fire and then she heard laughter behind her. And she turned around and our parlor uh, she was standing on the hearthstone in the parlor and our dining room was fully lit with lamps and candles and uh, the fireplace that had been sealed shut for more than a hundred years was wide open and there was a woman cooking stew at the fireplace and she was telling her children that were running around in the room to take their places on a bench that was up against a table that was not our table. It was their furniture from their time, not ours. And there were two men that were sitting on the other side of the table and they had pewter steins in front of them that are indicative of the 1700s because pewter for eating was outlawed in the 1800s because of the danger of lead poisoning. So um, one of the men turned and glanced into the parlor and made direct eye contact with my mother. And then he nudged the man beside him and pointed my mother out to that gentleman. And they both smiled at her. And you know, the way she put it is, I was the ghost. Yes, they were yes. looking forward into the future at me, and I was looking back into the past at them. Now, wasn't and that the one? That's when it all made sense to me. And now, that's when she had her moment of epiphany and her life turned around. Now, wasn't that the one incident that confirmed your belief in reincarnation? No. That wasn't no, it? No, that wasn't it. No, the one that uh, really got to me that I didn't even, I didn't even tell my mother exactly what I saw until the day we moved out of the farm. Um, everybody saw the apparition that was standing beside me. I had come home. Uh, for my 18th birthday in my freshman year of college and come home for that long weekend, which always falls uh, on the Columbus Day weekend. And, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I was very cold. I couldn't get warm, and I didn't understand 
I guess in the time I was away at college for the six weeks or so I'd been away that I forgot what it, what supernatural cold is compared to natural cold. And I was supernaturally cold standing on the hearthstone trying to warm myself up. And my mom had made a nice dinner and everybody was at the table. And I said, I'll be right there. I just need to warm up. And the whole right side of my body went like slab ice cold. And my father dropped his fork and I looked up when he did because the sound of the fork hitting the china plate startled me and he was staring in my direction but he wasn't looking directly at me he was looking to my to his his left my right and there was a full body apparition standing on the hearthstone with me everybody saw it but she was facing me and i turned so they only saw her profile and i turned and i looked at her and she was me as an old woman dressed in clothes from the 1700s with the big leg of mutton sleeves and the pearl buttons down the side and a big high waistband and a high bodice with lace and a full length dress. Um, and she smiled at me and I mean, her eyes were identical to mine. Her hair was, you know, long and thick and gray and all swirled up in a bun on her head. Um, and you know, when she smiled, I recognized it was like looking at a mirror image of myself as an old woman. Um, and um, it was it was lovely, but it was shocking because it was the first time. And, you know, I had explored the notion of reincarnation, certainly um, in, you know, in my in my studies. And, and, you know, it was just something that I was interested in and kind of fascinated by and i know that spirits do have the the power to uh to throw other images um but i didn't have that feeling about her it was strange because when we moved out i told mom that she was the spitting image of me uh as what i think that i would look like you know maybe in my 50s or 60s what i look like now and um my mother said to me, I always knew we bought this place for you. Wow. Um, and Andrea, I, I, but am... I don't want to go back life after life after life to live in that cold, <laughs> you know, that brutally cold farmhouse. I don't, I want to make my peace with that now. And I don't understand because I really do feel like this is the only time I've ever been on this planet. And I want it to be the only time that I am ever on this planet. And I'm just hoping uh, I'm reborn I... in the Bahamas. <laughs> Well, you know, either that or I would like to come back as one of my own cats. <laughs> there's just no animal on earth that's ever been more indulged than a cat or a dog in my care. Yeah. <laughs> now, I had a question. Your mother, as you mentioned, had the worst experiences with the evil spirit. Why do you think that was? Well, Cindy would say that, you know, she was kind of in the same boat as my mom was. Uh, both of them had numerous uh, incidents occur at the farm. Um, but, uh, my mother, I think that my mother represented, um, you know, and of course this is sheer speculation. We don't know for certain who any of the spirits that we encountered in the house are. None of them ever walked up to us and said, hello, my name is. So it was, you know, just educated guesses more than anything else. 
uh, Bathsheba Sherman was not the one that was harassing my mother. The spirit that was coming after my mother was long dead before Bathsheba was ever born. Bathsheba wasn't even born until 1812. And the spirit in the house uh, that came after my mom had a kind of a Scottish brogue and used uh, a, a, a usage of English that was completely archaic and out of use by the 1800s. So, you know, we're relatively certain that it was probably the original mistress of the house that resented my mother's presence but did not want her there. And she coveted us, the children, and she had a thing for my father, but she did not want my mother in that house. Yeah, and that that house was so very old, Andrea, um, dated in the 1600s uh, from the books is what I remember. Um, and you, yeah, it was, how many generations yeah, of uh, Arnold family lived there before you all arrived? Well, there were eight extended, um, you know, it was extended family, really, the Richardson family that came down from the Massachusetts Bay Colony um, to follow Roger Williams to the Rhode Island Colony. Uh, had the land deeded to them. And they're the ones that built the uh, um, houses on the land, which was originally thousands of acres. Uh, it stretched the entire corner, the northwest corner, uh, creating a boundary from um, Rhode Island, between Rhode Island and Connecticut, and to the north, uh, to the west, and to the north. It was uh, the boundary for the Massachusetts Bay Colony. So it was a very, very prime piece of property and was one of the original uh, Rhode Island. Uh, the name of the, the official name of the state is the State of Rhode Island and Providence Plantation. So it's obviously got the longest name, official name of any state, and it's the size of your thumb. You know, I mean, it's only 23 miles wide and 52 miles long. It's just a little tiny state uh, with a very big name. And the uh, the farm was one of the original Providence Plantation, uh, even though it was as far away from Providence practically as you can get in the state. Uh, but that land was deeded uh, to preserve what was at the time the colony before it became a state. And there were lots of skirmishes and, and issues and stuff like that. But that land was originally deeded in 1680, and the house as it stands now was completed in 1736. Uh, and it had been built onto over the years. We don't know when the original start date was for the farmhouse, but there are windows. There are outside windows inside the house between rooms mm -hmm. um so it uh it was added on to uh obviously over the course of time and it's you know quite large very spacious house but as big as it is it was it believe me when i tell you there were times it got very crowded in there yeah just how old the property is and um i was going to mention on our uh, your last story um about you seeing yourself as an old woman um i am reading your books i'm about halfway through the series i'm about halfway through book two um or volume two i should say and it was very interesting to me how um the farmhouse seemed not only to be a portal between dimensions of spirit world and and physical world but also a portal between times 
uh, that was not the only example of a time that you saw a family member of yours at a different age. Is that right? Yes. Um, it was, uh, <clears throat> there were, uh, there were several different in incidents, um, uh, that Cindy said the little girl that she saw in the house, um, with the long black hair and the big blue eyes. Cindy thinks that the little girl that she saw was the old woman that I saw. Hmm. Um, and, and that might be true. I mean, it, it could be, but she said, you know, Cindy's like five years younger than I am, four or five years younger than I. And, um, she said that the little girl appeared to be, um, maybe five or six years old. And she said to me that she looked just like me in pictures that she saw of me at that age because she wasn't born when I was that age. But she recognized and she said, she looks just like you. She looks just like you did when you were that age. Now, did um, And then, you know, I, and I mean, the, the fact of the matter is you, you've been in the field long enough to know that anything's possible. Um, you know, I think the safest assumption that any of us can make is that we know absolutely nothing compared with what there is to know. There are no, um, there are no experts in this field. Zero. None. Mm -hmm. uh, if our family doesn't have the answers to these questions, there's nobody on the planet that does. Right. It's all just a guessing game. Now, you, you mentioned... You, you think it was the Arnolds. Now, in the movie, they portray Bathsheba as the malevolent force. Was that more of James Wan, or did the Warrens actually believe that, or did they think it was the Arnolds as well? The Warrens actually believed that. They believed that was um, Bathsheba? That's why, yeah, they really did. Um, and, you know, to Mrs. Warren's credit, the first night that they came to the farm, um, my mother graciously... Uh, let them in. They looked harmless enough, and uh, she let them into the kitchen, and Mrs. Warren walked over to our big black stove and um, laid her hand on the corner of it and uh, covered her eyes, and she said, I sense a malignant force in this house, a malignant presence in this house, I believe is what she said. And then she said her name is Bathsheba, and she had no idea. Uh, of the history of the house. She had no idea about any of the spirit activity other than what Keith Johnson had told her uh, because he and his group from Rhode Island College showed up inexplicably at the house one day. And my mother said, I never called anybody. And Keith said, no, I recognize your voice. You called me to come help. And she said, no, dear, I never called anybody. I mean, to this day, we don't understand how that happened, but I do know that spirits are um, capable of throwing voices, uh, capable of using technology. I mean, anything could have happened. They were some, somehow supposed to be involved in the story. That I know. Um, and they're the ones that brought um, their group, Pyro, are the ones that uh, went to a seminar at University of Rhode Island and heard... Um, the Warrens speak, and they're the ones that informed them about what they knew had been happening at our house. So the Warrens didn't even come until a couple of months later, 
uh, even though they had the address and the phone number, they did not call. They just showed up. And they didn't come until the night before Halloween. And Mrs. Warren later said that the reason why they came then was because they thought that the veil would be thinnest and they would have the best opportunity to experience some type of manifestation. And my mother quickly assured her that in that case, then every night is Halloween. Uh, and every day it's Halloween because there is no veil at that farmhouse. There was constant activity uh, all the time. So, you know, it, it wasn't about, you know, the timing being perfect. It, it, that's a portal cleverly disguised as a farmhouse. There is no time. Time is the illusion. You know, you don't know if you're in the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century. You know, you don't know what century you're in when you're on that property. You could see Indian children running through virgin forest. You could see a woman hanging in the barn. You could see, you know, I mean, it, it was just, oh, my God. It was really an incredible way to grow up. It really was. <laughs> I, I can mean, only imagine. It just blew my mind. Well, question for you. Why did they think it was Bathsheba? Well, who was she in real life? Um, she was actually... Uh, from a very wealthy family. Um, she was, uh, the town historian at the time told us that she was somehow related to the Arnold, but subsequently we found out that she was not. She was actually a product of the union of the past and the Thayer families, which were two of the preeminent families in the colony, uh, and, what, and what later became the state of Rhode Island. Um, and that she had married Judson Sherman and moved up to the Sherman farm, which was adjacent to our farm, about a mile or so away. And, um, you know, she had, um, she had a bad reputation in town because the story that we were told by the historian, who was a very old man when we met him, Mr. McEachin, uh, he, she was, she died in um, uh, 1885, and he was 10 years old when she died. So he was, you know, pushing 100 years old when we met him. And he said that she was a vicious, vile woman and that she used to beat her farmhands and starve them and uh, was just, you know, hateful and horrible. And uh, she lost three of her four children before uh, you know, only one of them outlived her. Uh, she um, was married to Judson Sherman, but when she was young, he said that when she, you know, when she was very young, she was at our farmhouse and had an infant in her care that died. And we don't know if it was her infant or if it was, you know, a baby that belonged to the Arnold family or the Richardsons. I don't even know at what point the Richardson homestead became the Arnold estate because it was passed through marriage. And that's why uh, it, it changed uh, in terms of its uh, moniker. But um, she uh, apparently had this baby in her care, and the baby died. And when the body was examined, it was found that a needle uh, was impaled at the base of its skull, and the cause of death was ruled as convulsions. But because of the nature of the death, there was an inquest held. Uh, in what was the county seat of Chapacha at the time. And uh, she, you know, said, I, I had absolutely nothing to do with it. I don't know what happened. I do, you know, I, 
I don't know. Uh, there's no record of verbatim what she said, but uh, basically it was dismissed. It never went to a court or a trial or anything like that. So, and of course, there was no DNA, forensics evidence, or you know nothing. I mean, they had nothing but her word that she did not deliberately kill this baby. Um, and you know, considering the time when there were sewing baskets laying around all over the place, and you know, things can happen. So. Uh, even though the judge was willing to give her the benefit of the doubt in the court of public opinion, people were not. Uh, and apparently she lived a long and, and miserable life and was a very angry, bitter woman um, because, uh, you know, people thought she murdered a baby mm-hmm. and was shunned for for that. So, and of course then, you know, think it's not like but a hundred plus, you know, a few years after the Salem witch trials where women paid with their lives for having that word thrown at them. Um, and that was the whisperings in the town, according to Mr. McEachern, that, uh, not only through her life, but in her afterlife, Miss Bathsheba Sherman was known as a witch, uh, who sold her soul to the devil for eternal youth and beauty and sacrificed an innocent child, um, and made a pact with Satan. And, uh, you know, those were very, very dangerous things to say when she was alive and uh, equally damaging after her death. And, you know, there's no place recorded anywhere, um, not that there would necessarily be, but there is no evidence that she was a practicing witch that killed a baby. No evidence of it. None. Mm -hmm. You know, so the hearsay of persisted beyond the grave for her. Uh, I don't think she'd be buried in hallowed ground if, um, you know, there was any proof or evidence that she had actually done this. Uh, Her whole family is buried right in the center of Harrisville. Um, So I don't know. I I came to her defense Uh, in the third volume, uh, Lisa, there's a chapter called Season of the Witch. And it is really a historical retrospective of when that word first appeared, how it was used, um, how many millions of women have died, uh, horrible, horrible death because of it. Um, and I cannot absolve uh, Bathsheba Sherman, but I can certainly give her the benefit of the doubt, and I'm her defender. You know, you don't accuse somebody of murder unless you've got proof that they did it, period. Mm-hmm. Now, um, you know, listening to you speak and then listening to some of your other family members speak, it seems like you had more pleasant experiences than the rest of your family. Why do you think that was? They loved me. I was one of them in a lot of ways. I'm, I'm very... Uh, fourth and fifth dimensionally connected uh and i have been since i saw my first full body apparition it 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 was not it it was not disturbing or disruptive i'm not saying there weren't times that you know i was frightened in the house uh more so for my not for myself as as for other members of my family um that were facing some terrible hardships in the I uh, had a couple of close encounters that were very violent, very violent. Um, and so did my mother. So, you know, I was very concerned for both of them, particularly. 
Uh, but, you know, Nancy had her issues. Christine had some uh, up close and personal in your face kind of stuff happening. April was the one that uh, kind of stayed off and, you know, kept off to herself. And she's the one that had the little friend uh, who they represented as Rory in the movie. And they added him in from the book because the Warrens didn't know anything about him. Um, and the reason that they didn't was because April wouldn't tell them because she loved him and she didn't want them to take him away or make him go away. And she didn't know if they had the power to do that or not. She was only six or seven when the Warrens were coming to the house. So uh, she kept her lip zipped about uh, who she always called Oliver, Oliver Richardson. So apparently uh, he goes back to the original family that built that house. And it, uh, April said he died when he was five or six years old. And so for that period of time, they were the same age in different dimensions. So they had that in common. <clears throat> yep. Well, now we talked about you talked about this that you uh, wrote three books on the subject: House of Darkness, House of Light. And from what I hear, they finally gave you the green light to have it—not just one, not two, but three movies based on your books. Can you talk about that? Yes, in fact, yeah, I was on the phone for an hour and a half with my producer out in California today, uh, and we're you know going to be moving. We're taking care of. You know, making a movie is, is no easy feat, and there's lots and lots and lots involved. I mean, oh, my God, if you ever saw any of the emails that he sent me, <laughs> you know, the breakdown that we have to do this, and we have to do this, and we have to do that. I mean, there's like a thousand steps before anybody picks up a camera. <laughs> um, but I'm two-thirds of the way through the second screenplay, should be able to uh, bang the third one out Um hopefully by the end of the year, um, and say, okay, this is done. And then what we're going to do is um, we're going to do all the preparation for the films uh, throughout the course of the rest of the year, and then I think that we'll be filming them back-to-back -back, uh, during um, 2019, and then I imagine that they'll start being released in 2020. All right. Now, the question I have for you, because I did meet the composer at Paracon, which is a paranormal convention in Rhode Island. Do you have a director in mind? Uh, yes, actually. Um, but I can't say who right yet. Okay. Well, you know what? We're going to have to have you back on the show once, <laughs> once the movie's released. Sure. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Now, the, is the book, so, I mean, so far, is the movie what they're going to be doing very, very um, on par with your books? They're going to make it, you know. It's identical. Oh, that's, yeah. That's great. Uh, including the stories that my sisters would not let me put in the book uh, originally that you know, they had trepidation about because they were either too disturbing or too intense or too personal or, you know, and they've since lightened up about that. So those incidents that were left out of the book are actually in the screenplays. Wow. And they're going to they're going to really freak people out. Uh, a couple of them are really, uh, you know, I understand why my sisters wanted, you know, these, these stories left out of the trilogy, um, but uh, they will be in the films. And it's, uh, yeah, we've got uh, a lot of pieces are coming together, and there's uh, some uh, very uh, famous top-notch 
actors that are quite anxious to be involved with this project. Well, I'm hoping you have a cameo. Are they going to put you in the movie? Andrea. Did we lose her? Andrea. Can you hear us, Andrea? That's really weird. Hear you. Okay, Andrea, I don't know what happened. We lost you for a second. Can you hear me? Uh, yeah, that that does happen from time to time, <laughs> and uh, it's it's uh, spiritual in nature. Make no mistake; they do like to mess around with our technology. <laughs> I guess we're we're trying to actually you know tell something good about the spirits. We're talking about their story. We want to, we want the world to know the real story, so they should let us talk right now. <laughs> well, no, they want they want you to know that they're listening. All, All right. right. Well, noted. Duly noted. <laughs> um, the question of what I was going to say before we were interrupted was that I hope that you have a cameo in the movie. Are you going to be a part of it or do you have a part in it that you know of? No, I don't. I don't think so. Um, it, that's really not something that I'm interested in. I'm on TV and on the radio uh, a lot. <clears throat> so it's not it's not something that's important to me. I don't really want to have a, a role in it. My role is to oversee it. Yeah. To make sure that it is authentic, that it is truthful, that uh, it is a proper reflection and portrayal of my family. So that's my predominant role. And as a producer of the film, it's incumbent upon me not to be uh, distracted by having to learn any lines or, you know, anything like that. My my job is to make sure that everything is as it should be. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't anticipate having a cameo. And I think that that would be a distraction mm -hmm. for people who know me. You know, I've got, uh, I'm, you know, pretty well known in the paranormal community and I don't want Oh, there's Andrea. You know, I think that that would be distracting to anybody that was deeply engrossed in the film. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. And the same thing happened to me when I watched The Conjuring because you could see Lorraine in there for just a second. But when I was in the theater the first time, everybody's like, there's Lorraine. There's Lorraine. Because she's in the audience watching the Warrens do their seminar when your mother supposedly sought them out in the movie. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this, right. I, I understand exactly what you're saying because I know a lot of people kept on pointing and whispering. So, yeah, I think it would be maybe a distraction to, to a lot of people who know you. And you are very well known. So, Andrea, you're very wow. involved in the production of these films. Are you actually co-producing or are you just being a uh, consultant for your producer? Oh no, I'm in charge. Perfect. <laughs> nice. That was the deal. That had to be the deal. Uh, I had to be, and I'm not trying to be a control freak, but I just don't see the point in making another fictionalized version of a true story. Sure. Um, you know, it's, it's time to tell the truth. I think people are absolutely ready for it. Um, you know, and of course, you know, there will be forewarning, and of course, people will understand that, you know, these these incidents and these events are real and they are true and uh, it will have a right and proper rating uh, for the intensity of the films. But ratings are meaningless now. James Wan was so upset 
upset when they gave uh, The Conjuring an R rating, and he demanded to know why. I was with him when it happened, when the uh, MPAA sent down their their decision, and he had to be peeled off the ceiling of the Anaheim Convention Center. He was so upset, and he said, he told one of the producers, call them back right now. I want to know exactly why this film got an R. There's no gratuitous violence. There's no sex. There's no bad language. There's none of that. What's the problem? I want a PG-13 on this. And they and they came right back and said, it's just too scary. Sorry. Well, yeah. well they did do a great job on the movie. R-rated or PG-13 and truth or no truth. I thought the movie was very well done. I like James Wan as a director. But, yeah, I love the fact that you're going to take the truth and portray it and so everybody can see actually what happened now is it a major studio or is it going to be more of an independent feel uh it's being made through a um a major filmmaker but a major independent filmmaker i am never letting a studio do anything but uh i mean that there's i no. (laughs) (laughs) i learned my lesson well um, this is the only way to make this is the same way that I published my book, which was independently, because then nobody else owns the material. Nobody else gets to call the shot. Nobody else gets to tell me what I'm going to do in terms of telling my own story and our, my family's memoir. So um, if this is going to be some, you'll recognize a lot of the names that are associated with this film. And you'll recognize um, people that have worked for major studios and major production companies. But uh, this, I'm I'm handpicking who's going to be involved from the casting agent down. So um, it will be uh, an independent venture, and we hope to introduce the films one at a time at uh, several film festivals around the world. Now, when can we expect the first one? I think that the first one will probably be out toward the end of 2020. Oh, that's not far away at all. So is it going to be one, like a sort of like a Star Wars, one movie per year? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think we're going to, to put them out you know, relatively close to each other. Oh, wow. that's okay. even... <clears throat> so we haven't, I mean, that's, at this point, we're not even, you know, we're not, that's not something that we're even discussing. Because uh, right. there's a thousand and one things that we have to do before that's even a topic. Oh, yeah. Um, but, um, you know, I mean, I signed the original contract for, for New Line Cinema and Warner Brothers to use our names and likenesses back in 2007. Um, and then signed the official contract with New Line in 2009. And the film didn't come out until 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it really took seven years to make that film from start to finish. Um, and we'll have ours done probably uh, over the course start to finish. We'll have the first film out after about three years total mm-hmm. since I started writing the first screenplay. Well, I heard the main phrase in filmmaking is hurry up and wait. <laughs> There's a lot of that. Yeah. Yes, there is a lot of that. No, are you- and, I, and I'm fine with that because I'm very – see, time is irrelevant to me. It's it's beyond elusive. It doesn't really actually exist. It's a, 
it's a machination of humanity so that we can kind of take our own temperature and, you know, keep track of the sun rising and setting and all of that. But, uh, you know, universally time is, uh, is just a construct. Um, and we have a specific one for this, you know, three dimensional world that we live in, but it's not the truth of our existence. And, and I'm, you know, very, very well aware of that. So, uh, I let the universe tell me when things are going to happen, and I just say yes to the universe. Yep, just go with the flow. What would be great is if you could actually film the movie in the real house, but I know you have some problems there. Uh, well, we'll see what happens over time. Um, we'll see. I mean, I'm hoping uh, that eventually I have the house back, not because I want to live in it. I wouldn't ever want to live in it again, but... I would really love to be able to open it for people to investigate it and open it as a, a kind of a paranormal museum and have people be able to feel the energy and have the experience of being in that farmhouse. I think it would be extraordinary. I've always said that the one piece of absolutely undeniable, irrefutable um, evidence that proves the existence of the netherworld will come out of that house. Uh, and that continues to be my belief. Oh yeah, well, Lisa and I would be the first two people in line to be in, to see that museum. I would love to see that farmhouse. I would love to feel the energy and just you know experience not experience everything you went through, but you know what I mean. Just experience you know the the presence of something else and what you're talking about. Because I'm very very fascinated with everything you're talking about. I love the paranormal. I love you know UFOs, extraterrestrials, which we we're going to talk about in part two. But, uh, yeah, that would be great if you can do that. Is there any chance right now, is it is the family that lives there now starting to warm up a little bit? Because I know when The Conjuring first came out, they were really mad that people were paying so much attention to the house, and they sort of denied everything, and that's where there was some friction between the two of you. Is she starting to warm up a little bit since it's been a couple of years? Um, I have nothing to do with her. Okay. Um, she, uh, we were friends for 28 years. I had access to the farmhouse and the property whenever I wanted. Um, the original producer of The Conjuring is the one that contacted her first, and then she gave him my phone number, um, and then went on national television and, and said to the world that I never told her there was going to be a film made. Uh, she's a liar. And so I have nothing to do with her anymore. She's the one that fractured our friendship, not me. I've been completely and utterly consistent in the telling of this story, as has every member of my family for the last 45 years. Uh, and she's the one that did a complete 180 after chasing my mother around for two years, trying to get her to write a book with her about the Harrisville house past and present. Um, she's the most disingenuous person that I've ever met in my life. Um, and she's a dark cloud that hangs over uh, what was uh, otherwise, I thought, a very enlightening project. Um, she didn't have any trouble with my books or the story uh, or any issue with me personally until people started sniffing around her house. I did everything I could to help her uh, to circumvent that from happening. It didn't matter. She turned on me like a viper. She blamed me for everything, and she called my mother a bold-faced liar. Oh, my and God. that was the end of that. 
Yeah, I don't blame you for being mad. I saw old videos of you two on YouTube where you're in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. You had about a 45-minute yeah. interview, and she seemed like, you know, then she was so open to it. She was, oh, yeah, this happened, that happened. I mean, if she ever wanted to call your mother and you a liar, just roll the tape and watch that old interview where she admits how she's seen this, she heard that spirit, that this happened. So, yeah, I don't I – mean, yeah, she spent decades inviting paranormal investigators into that house, uh, and I had no knowledge of that. You know, I only lived 10 miles away, but, you know, I didn't find out about uh, Season 2, Episode 7 of The Ghost Hunters until after it aired. And I walked into work one day, and somebody at work said to me, I think your old house was on Ghost Hunters last night. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, and, and then I watched it. And, uh, you know, the... the if anybody has any question in their mind as to her her level of personal honesty, all they need to do is, you know, season two, episode seven, the Sutcliffe investigation, which is the second half of the, of the broadcast. Um, you know, I'm friends with all the men, uh, the people that were in that house that night investigating that house, including Jay Blumke and Dustin Perry and John Zappas and... Grant Wilson and Jason Hawes. And, you know, I know all of these people personally. Um, and they had many experiences in that house that more, they gathered more evidence in one night in that house than they could stuff into the episode. Uh, you know, it's uh, her last words were, I guess I, well, I guess I have a bona fide haunted house. You know, I mean, she was all in until it didn't benefit her. Um, and sad to say, um, and she was very angry because James Wan, uh, contracted or or new line had contracted with her to film at the house. And then they reneged on the contract because James Wan said, absolutely no way. Mm. So as far as she's concerned, she lost, lost a boatload of money and decided to blame me and my family. Uh, and that's the bottom line. Um, and I don't care what she thinks, and I don't care what she says, and I don't care how many incoherent, uh, you know, the combative videos she puts out in the world to get her 15 minutes of fame. I don't care. She's the one that has to live with that karma, not me. Well, you know, I could sue her. I could shut her down. I could zip her up. And I, I just choose not to because every time anybody sees what she's put out in contrast and quite on the contrary to everything she said before, um, it's it's abundantly evident. <laughs> you know, it's abundantly clear that she's the one that couldn't keep her story straight, not my family. Well, I was just going to— No, I don't beat up on her because her husband died, and he was a wonderful, wonderful man and absolutely a, a treasure of a human being. And— um, you know, so I just keep my distance from that situation. You know, I couldn't even send, send her a sympathy card. She would have torn it up. Oh, my God. Uh, it, it's it's a shame. Yeah. It's a real shame. But Jerry knows, uh, you know, I, I loved him, and he was a very kind and, and gentle and and generous spirit of a, of a human being. And I'm sure uh, in the afterlife, uh, I hope all, nothing but good things. And I hope he's showered with blessings. Uh, he was just uh, a, a saint, and uh, as far as I'm concerned, her approach to all of this made her a sinner. Yikes. Well, I was going to say, I mean, you can go back and watch all the tapes. Like you said, you have always been consistent. You've always said the same stories over and over again. You've never changed. You never deterred from the story. 
Now she's, you can look back at several tapes and she has different stories for each one. It's like that saying, if you tell the truth, you never have to have a memory. So basically who are they going to believe? Yep. So I, yep. I, I hope it all works out for you. And I think that would be great for the paranormal community. I think it'd be great for just people of interest. If you can make that into a museum and you can learn a lot from the house because what did, um, tell me what Ed said. I think it was, was it on his deathbed. He goes out of all the the houses that we have investigated, this is the one story I'd love to see made into a movie. I think I heard yeah. that somewhere. Yeah, he, um, uh, one of the last things that he said, um, to his wife, uh, was, and he had been on the record, you know, talking about the story. In fact, that's, you know, John Zappas is the one that, which is his nephew, right? How much Ed, yeah, that was his nephew. And, um, you know, he told me. Uh, how uh, immersed Ed was in the story, and he always said that it was the most intense, most disturbing, uh, most significant of all of the investigations they ever conducted over more than 40 years as a paranormal investigative team. Um, and he told Lorraine, told her, make sure you get this story told before you join me. Um, it needs to go out in the world. And so she was um, adamant that it be told, but she was also adamant that it be told more as a love story between them, and the producers wouldn't go for that. They focused much more on what happened to our family. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, they you know mischaracterized it and misrepresented it as something that it was not. Um, especially what I had said earlier to you about my mother's uh, reaction to them uh, kind of juxtaposing the devout Roman Catholic uh, warrants against, you know, the godless heathen pagan parents. Um, and that's just not true. Uh, it was the Catholic Church turned its back on our family. It, it wasn't the other way around. Uh, and when the priest in our parish got wind of what was happening at the farm, um, he approached my father and asked my dad, who was raised Roman Catholic, went to a parochial school, was an altar boy, uh, and was going to head into the seminary for the priesthood before he met my mother. Um, and that priest asked my father, who had devoted his life to the church, if he would take his family and worship elsewhere. Oh, my God. It hurt my father deeply, deeply to the core, and that was the last time that we ever went to church together as a family. Did they ever apologize to you and your family? No. Like years later, say, no. you know what, maybe we're, we were a little closed-minded, we were a little afraid, we didn't like all the attention? No. Nothing? Wow. No, you're giving them way too much credit, honey. Well, in fact, you know, I was, in, in my own spiritual speaking, and because so many of my friends went to St. Patrick, um, I enrolled in... Um, confirmation classes when I was 14 or 15, hoping that the priest didn't remember me. But then um, the, my, my mom and dad got a, a letter from the bishop 
saying that they didn't really want my kind in the church. Wow. <laughs> wow. I got thrown out. I, we got, I got thrown out twice. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> we, we applaud you. <laughs> now, a question, Thank because you. obviously the spirits were at that house. Did they follow you and your family to where you live now? Yes. Did most of them, yeah. did most of them go with, like, I'm hoping by now they're leaving your mother alone. Uh, yeah, my mom's, my mom's fine. My mom's, uh, very well protected now. Oh, good. Uh, I made sure of that, um, after a, a very bad incident, um, that she had in 2012 while the rest of us were on the set, uh, at, while they were filming The Conjuring. And at the last minute, she decided not to go. And interestingly, at the last minute, Lily Taylor who played her in the film, also decided not to go. So the two matriarchs, uh, you know, the fake parents and the real parents were mm-hmm. missing, wow. uh, the, two, the two mothers. Um, and while my mom was home, uh, there was an accident uh, in the house. And, you know, I don't believe in accidents. And <clears throat> uh, our dog, Libby, um, went running up to the door, and my mom said that she stepped aside and was shoved, was pushed and landed um, on her hip and, and snapped her hip. Uh, and she was in agony, and, and my uh, niece showed up to uh, ask her to take her out to dinner because she knew she was home alone, and she's the one that found her and got her to the hospital. And we got a call on the set that mom had broken her hip, and we drove um, straight back to, uh, to Georgia. It was a nine-hour drive when we got into her hospital room. She had just come out of surgery and she sat bolt upright in bed as sedated as she was. And she said, um, I haven't felt that presence in more than 30 years. And then she laid back down and slept right through to the next day. And she doesn't have any memory of that, but her doctor and her nurses and her whole family was in the room when she said it, um, that, but she doesn't remember it. And, uh, you know, we kind of have a running joke in the family. Like if somebody gets a hangnail or, you know, the head goes flying off the axe while you're chopping wood, it's, you know, we always off that cheapest first. You know, it's like <laughs> she got such a raw deal in life. You know, we try to make light of it. And, and so, you know, it, she referred to it as bad cheapest curse. But, you know, whatever it was, um, it, it was, it was, there was some, you know, incredibly negative, evil energy. It was swirling, and interestingly, even though I don't tell, you know, I know the whole cast and crew and everybody of The Conjuring, and uh, and I don't tell their stories for them. Uh, the only story that I do tell, and, and apparently they don't talk about it much, none of them would go out to promote the film afterwards, which was technically breaking their contract to do it, um, because, or, you know, to refuse to do it. And it was because of some of the things that happened. But the night after, uh, we left so abruptly. We were supposed to stay on the set for two days, and we we left after we found out Mom had been injured. Um, and uh, the night after uh, that happened, at 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, there was an episode of spontaneous combustion in the hotel where the entire casting crew was staying. And at two o'clock in the morning, as their hotel was burning, they were all outside in the parking lot in their pajamas. <laughs> um, and nobody knows what the source of that fire was. Well, 
I mean, I guess it's the similar experiences I hear about the movie Poltergeist. I guess when you're dealing with that subject, you're going to encounter some kind of experiences because you're sort of literally, in your case, playing with fire. <laughs> yes. So uh, well, I'm glad. Yes, and, and, you know, as Lisa gets, you know, deeper and deeper into the trilogy, um, she will encounter that as well because the spirit that was haunting and taunting my mother uh, used fire to terrify her. Um, you know, we lived in a tinderbox of a house that was, you know, 250 years old, uh, clapboard, and um, she had five children sleeping upstairs. You know, there's nothing a mother fears more than fire. Wow, very interesting. Well, you know what I like most about you is that how you turn you and your family's experiences into a positive by helping others. I mean, I've personally seen you in action several times. To me, you are a great motivational speaker. I see just by hugging somebody, I could see how you make them feel better. And by talking to them, I could see like almost like a weight has been lifted from some people. So I think that maybe everything that has happened to you, like you said, there's no coincidences. There's no accidents. This all happened for a reason. I think that you are definitely doing some great things out there and helping a lot of people. Well, I hope so. I mean, you know, I have my critics um, in the field, too, because... Of course, they trade in fear. Uh, you know, a lot of people that work in this field, it's, it's all about being spooked. It's all about being terrified. It's all about, you know, that's how they sell tickets. That's how they, you know, build stadiums. That's how they do their thing. Uh, it's based on, you know, tapping into that primal urge that uh, people seem to enjoy. I will never understand why. But people seem to enjoy and feel more alive when they're scared to death. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I don't get it, um, but and I don't buy into it. But I try to dispel fear because this is really not – this is physics that we don't understand. This is science. The, the great breakthroughs, you know, as Nikola Tesla said, as Einstein said, the, the great breakthroughs will come with the merging of science and spirituality uh, that, you know, we will understand more. I think that's why um, I, I don't know. I don't understand people <laughs> I guess is the best way for me to put it. Uh, well, just reading the first you know, book, um, some of the stories in the first book alone reminded me of multi, um, I think they call it multi-world theory and quantum mechanics that I just barely learned about in college. Um, it looked like the things you were experiencing was just proof of what was written in textbooks about that. So I find it inspirational that spirit exists. You know, I've known since I was 12 years old that there is something beyond our mortal existence, that it's not just ashes to ashes, dust to dust, that, you know, perhaps the vessel does die, of course, but that something of us goes on. Uh, and I find that comforting and I find that inspiring. You know, it would be kind of a waste to live the whole life long and learn all the lessons and share all the love and, experience everything that we do and then have it be nothing, you know, for meant for nothing. Um, you know, accumulating and accruing all of this uh, life experience 
what, what you know, does it, energy doesn't just dissipate into nothingness. Um, it goes on. And even though I can't tell you precisely in the way that it does, uh, just to know that I've seen what I've seen in my life uh, is tremendously comforting for me. And when my baby sister died last year, um, it devastated our entire family, absolutely leveled all of us. And I feel badly for people that think this is all hogwash and that, you know, there's no such thing as spirits, ghosts and spirits. There's no such thing as, as you know, life after death. Um, I'm sad for them because we've had uh, numerous visitations from April for us to be reassured by her that she's fine um, and that she's happy. Uh, and had we not been... Um, had the pump not been primed by growing up in that farmhouse, had we not all learned to see extra dimensionally uh, and interdimensionally, I don't know that we would have recognized um, her apparition or know that she would have been able to manifest the way that she did um, and, and have that kind of uh, interconnection without having experienced what we did. So um, I'm grateful for it. And my mother is too. And my mother's the one that should probably be most resentful and most bitter. You know, I mean, it robbed her of her youth. It robbed her of her strength. It robbed her in, uh, you know, a hundred different ways living at that farm. But she looks back on it now with gratitude and says, I've learned everything I need to know about life and death and the afterlife from living at that farm. And I have no fear of death. Well, I think that's probably the most comforting thing that you can let people know that, yes, there is something else out there. What you're experiencing right now in Earth is not the end. It's basically just the beginning. And I've seen you talk about that, and I've seen people's faces where they're just like you almost calm them down and reassure them. And so, yeah, I think that out of everything that's happened to you and your family, that is probably the most positive thing that came out of it. And, Andrea, I want to thank you very much for being on the podcast. As always, you were a fun and interesting interview. I could talk to you for hours. So uh, what I want to do is I want to do a part two where we talk about – I know you have a new book coming out on aliens, and I cannot wait to hear about this, where you talk about your experiences with UFOs, extraterrestrials. So what I'm going to do is um, we'll record that next time and give people a chance to digest all the ghosts and the paranormal, and then next time we'll delve right into the uh, UFOs and ETs. What do you think about that? Oh, that sounds perfect. Absolutely lovely. Let's say it's a plan. All right. Well, we'll set that up, and then we're going to do a third one because when the movie comes out, I definitely need to speak with you again. I want to talk about all Absolutely. of that. So, and also, while we're here, I want to thank my co-host, Lisa. Thank you very much for being part of the show. And thank you for allowing me to join you. All right. So that is it for the Claws Corner. And, Andrea, like I said, you're welcome back anytime. And until next time, see you in the Claws Corner. And I have a very special episode for you tonight. This is most likely the most requested interview that I've had so far. The Claws Corner welcomes author, screenwriter, and motivational speaker, Andrea Perrin. All of this resulted from her experiences with ghosts, demons, UFOs, and aliens on a little farmhouse in Rhode Island that she grew up on. The movie The Conjuring was based on her family's life. Please welcome the always interesting Andrea Perrin. Now, now Andrea... 
I want to take a turn from the paranormal to UFOs and extraterrestrials. Do you think that there actually is a link? Oh, yes, I feel absolutely certain because through all the decades of research that I've done, um, you know, and, and through using my own intuitive skills uh, as, you know, and, and my own power of discernment through my experiences, uh, I'm convinced that, you know, everything is just energy. You know, thoughts are things and everything is energy. And, uh, you know, the, the 3D world around us is, um, is more than it appears to be. So in so uh, stating, I have to say that growing up the way that I did in that old colonial farmhouse in Harrisville, Rhode Island, uh, prepared me for what was to come. Uh, we moved into the house when I was 12. And within moments, I saw my first full-body apparition, except that I didn't know he was a ghost. He appeared absolutely solid to me. It wasn't until my sisters saw him disappear that we realized there was something unusual about this place. Um, and then it was a year later, not quite a year later, uh, that uh, I saw an entire flotilla of ships pass over the farmhouse, and I don't understand to this day why I was outside by myself, how I got there. Um, I have no recollection of anything that happened before I was standing in the middle of the yard, and it was October, and the trees were absolutely resplendent with color. It was a crisp, clear bright blue sky, a gorgeous day. The sun was setting over my shoulder, and then I saw a shadow. I saw, like, it looked at first like uh, somebody had taken a, 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 an enormously huge bag of cotton balls and suddenly just scattered them through the sky. The sky that had been completely clear an instant before was suddenly filled with these clouds and every color you can imagine and a hundred more you can't imagine were the colors of these clouds. And then I saw the point of a shadow. It was a very large point and it seemed to have circles on the outer edge of it and then more geometric figures and then more geometric figures. There had to be minimum minimum a dozen, and I know it was an even number because there was one on each side of the ship that were identical to each other like bookends, but the ship itself, the main vessel, looked like an upside-down city. It had uh, protrusions at the bottom of it with lights on inside, absolutely, utterly, totally silent. It silenced the birds. There was no sound, or if there was any sound going on around me, I was not privy to it. I was completely, utterly, totally transfixed and mesmerized by what I was seeing over my house, over my farm, over my head. I couldn't believe my eyes. Um, I, because I was so young and because I had not fully developed my own depth perception, I honest to God can't tell you if it was 
the size of Fenway Park or if it was the size of Manhattan. All I know is that it was gigantic beyond any uh, anything that you could even imagine that could float. And it was so low that it blocked out the sun and it was in my atmosphere right over my house. And it traumatized me. It, but not in a bad way. You know, I mean, we're the ones with the pocket full of post-it notes. You know, this, we pull it out every time we have an experience or an adventure in life. And we say, this is good and stick it on it. And this is bad and stick it on it. Or this is nothing at all. And, you know, put benign there. Um, this blew my mind. Absolutely blew my mind. I didn't even tell my mother about it for about three, maybe four years after it happened. Um, not until we all, four of us, had a sighting of a vessel landing in our garden at the farm. And it was a, a magnificent little vehicle. It was just tiny, really. It only had a circumference of maybe two feet, maybe at the most, no, no more than two feet. Um, and panels of lights all around it, and it landed right in the middle of our garden, and Christine, Cindy, my mother, and I saw it uh, just after dusk, come in for a landing, flashing and carrying on, and it left, it, it burned the, the stalks of corn that it landed on were not burned. They were disintegrated. There was a hole, uh, not a hole, just a circle where it landed and all the corn that had been there <laughs> was gone. It was gone. Wow. Like right down no root, no nothing like it had never been planted. It was just absolutely bizarre. Now was that from your first experience? I don't remember that. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Was, was that was that from your first experience? No, that came about three or four years after my first experience. Uh, with the flotilla, and it wasn't for decades and decades that I found out that that same flotilla that came over our farmhouse um, was spotted first in Nova Scotia, and when it got, it went down the eastern seaboard, and then it took a hard turn across the pond and made a tour of Western Europe, and it wasn't until the British uh, scrambled their fighter jets that it disappeared in a split second off the radar over the North Pole. Um, and it was gone in a split second. It was gone off their radar. It was gone. Now, you um, mentioned that you saw extraterrestrials in the ship. Is that correct? Uh, I have seen I have seen beings in a ship, but I didn't see them in that ship. It was far too uh, elevated for me to have seen that. What I could see was the square protrusions that came down like columns, uh, all different heights, variant heights. Uh, and I could see that, and I could see the lights. And I was absolutely struck by the silence of it and how slowly it was moving because anything... At, you know, at that age, I'm looking up and I'm seeing this and I'm thinking, that should fall right out of the sky. You know, it's just, I mean, it was floating by it. And I'm sure as big as it was and all the vessels around it, 
um, that it was moving faster than it appeared to be moving, you know, to my untrained eye. But still, it should have fallen out of the sky for how slowly it was moving. Um, but no, it was years later. It was within the last decade. Oh, let me see if I can figure out exactly. Um, I had an incident at my mother's house in Georgia, probably, I would say now about maybe six years ago. Um, and I was just standing out on the carport and all of a sudden this vessel just manifests over my head. It was there. It was moving. Um, but it, it un uncloaked or whatever. I don't know for just a moment. I mean, it was absolute deliberate conscious contact. And it was a long cylindrical tube, and it looked like uh, a pencil without the point. It came to a, a point on both ends. It had a red stripe in the center of it, and it had windows. And it was so close to the ground that I could see beings standing in the windows looking down at me while I was looking up at them. And it, it stayed visible for no more than, I would say, two to three seconds and then became invisible again. But it was probably no more than 500 feet above them. Now, what did they look like? Um, tall and thin and dark. They appeared dark. There was light coming from behind them. So basically, I was looking at a silhouette. So it wasn't anything like the movies, like Close Encounters with the big head, the green, the big eyes? No. Nothing like no. that at all? Well, no, and I wasn't close enough to see their faces. All right, so a thing about that, so well, this is fascinating, but did they interact with you through, uh, like, through, through your thoughts? Were they, like, getting through to you? Like, uh, I consider every single uh, incident that occurs uh, conscious contact. I get information uh, all the time. Now, what, what were they saying that day, like the first time that you met them, or saw them, I should say? The first time that I, the first vessel that I saw when I was a child? Uh, well, the first time you saw, you actually saw the ETs in the ship, what were they saying to you when they saw you? Uh, I don't know. You don't? I don't know. I really don't. Um, I was so stunned by what I saw. I was so shocked. Yeah. Uh, that whatever message I got. And, you know, by that time, I was a seasoned contactee. Um, and yet, that shocked me because it was so low. It was so uh, obviously meant for me to see them. Um, it was conscious contact. And I don't know what was imparted to me or if anything was or if they just wanted me to see them because they happened to be in the area. I don't know. I wish I had the answers to those questions. Yeah. Because the other question I had were, were all of your contacts, were they related? Were they the same beings? Were they the same part of the same atmosphere, you know, um, galaxy? Or were they no. from different ones? They were different? Different, yes. Yeah, I have a lot of different interactions with a lot of different races. Now, um, in, according to what I've read... But I don't let any of the dark beings near me. There are dark forces in the universe, and none of us should kid ourselves about that. I was just going to ask know, you that. Not, 
just, yeah, there's not just duality on this planet. Duality exists throughout the universe. Uh, and there are some worlds that have managed to ascend above any form of violence or, you know, anything. I mean, they're what we would call nirvana or bliss or utopia uh, in terms of the life forms being able to live out their lives without threat of destruction from each other. Um, but there are still dark forces in the universe, and there are uh, most of the most of the races that are routinely visiting this planet are light beings, are here to help, are here to make their presence known, to lift us up and to raise our consciousness, to raise the vibration of this planet, to infuse it with light, to activate our ancient DNA so that we know who we really are. Um, they're here with purpose and reason and good intention, um, but not all of them are. So uh, using my own power of discernment and knowing that my own personal light will keep any dark force at bay, uh, I go forward hopefully every day, uh, allowing myself to connect with beings that um, I don't know who they are. Honestly, I don't know who they are, but I feel uh, a sense of tenderness and camaraderie and family. Uh, they feel familial to me. I call them the galactic family. I don't call them aliens. It has such a negative connotation, especially in the current climate. Um, I do not use that word to describe them. They're no more alien to this planet than we are and in fact have probably been coming and going from it a lot longer than we've existed on it. I lost that part, honey. I didn't hear what you asked. How many encounters have I had in the course of my life? I couldn't possibly answer that. <laughs> I wish I, I, I thousands. Yes, thousands. Do they come here with a message for you? That you want, that they want you to reveal to the rest of the the people, like is a message. Yes. I know there's a message of peace. That there is there a reason why they're coming to you and saying this is the reason why we're showing your, ourselves to you because we want you to spread the word that we're here in peace. Is that something that they're saying or? Yes, but it's it's way more complicated than that. It really is. It's I mean it's it's. Gosh, I don't want this discussion to uh, reflect um, the topic as in any way rudiment rudimentary because it's the most important um, thing about our life and our time here now. You know, I really do believe that it's uh, we're at a pivotal time in the course of human history mm -hmm. and that we're here now to spread the word. So I don't want people listening to think that this is 
in any way simplistic. It's not. Uh, it's actually very complicated, and it involves uh, our geopolitical system. It involves what some people call the cabal or the Illuminati. Uh, it involves uh, different races with different intentions and some that are supporting the money grubbers and some that are not. I mean, this is, there's so many, it's like, a, it's like an onion. Like imagine the biggest onion that you could ever find. And you, you need to get to the heart of the matter and you need to start peeling back one layer at a time, one layer at a time. We had official disclosure of the uh, existence of UFOs from the United States federal government on December 16th, 2017. Mm -hmm. And it was, as I described in one of my videos, uh, a crumb, a tidbit, and a morsel, uh, and still misinformation um, as well. But what they did release was official disclosure. And what they did release was what I described as a, uh, a snowflake on the tip of an iceberg the size of Antarctica. Now, are the good ones keeping the bad ones at bay? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and we're keeping the bad ones at bay. Our energy is keeping um, what we label as bad. Now, again, we're the ones with the label. And I think that it's perfectly appropriate to assume that they don't necessarily have any ill intent toward us because if they wanted to eat us for lunch, they could have done it millennia ago. So that's not it. Um, there are some that will not even maliciously interfere. They're just AI. They're scientists. Yeah. And, um, and they... They look at us like we would look at a bed of ants. One of my favorite uh, so UFO stories. I don't, oh, go ahead. I don't blame them. Yeah. No, I was going to say one of my favorite documented UFO stories has to be the Betty and Barney Hill story. Because that, beyond a doubt, shows that there is life out there. I'm sure you know about this story. Where they got picked yeah. up years ago and um, under hypnosis, they said, where are you? And she drew a solar system that they had no idea existed until years later when they had the technology to show that, oh, wow, that actually does exist. Mm -hmm. So I, that one, if that doesn't prove to people that there is life out there, then I don't know what does. But I mean, like you, I've listened to you speak so many different times and you have so much great information. And I think you, you have so much validation that, yes, there is other life out there. And I love listening to you speak about this because uh, this really interests me. Well, it's the most important uh, story of our time or any other time in the course of human history. We have now evolved to the point where we, uh, you know, this isn't like uh, when the when Egypt was ruling the world and, and there were uh, all kinds of documentation of visitations during that time and uh, all throughout the course of history. There are depictions of vessels, space vessels, uh, in many of the great pieces of artwork that have been left behind. 
Um, but that's not, that's then. And this is now. And we have technology that we did not have in the 1500s. We can peer out into the cosmos with Hubble. You know, Hubble's our eyes uh, in outer space. And what has come back, what we have seen, that alone has expanded human consciousness. <clears throat> you know, when you just happen to be walking past the TV and they've gotten a whole new batch of photographs in and they're showing them on the evening news or something and you just catch a glimpse of that, that alone fries open the human mind. And for some people, it's uncomfortable because it makes them feel more like a speck of dust than they already felt. It makes them feel somehow insignificant in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, it's almost like the but fear the of the unknown as well. True. The opposite is true. This universe is teeming with life forms. And many of the life forms that come to this planet are humanoid. They have two arms, two legs, a torso, and two eyes. You know, I mean, if if there is a god, per se, that has created life in its own image and likeness, then it's at least conceivable that what we worship as God is another life form, and we sort of look like them. Mm -hmm. Now, do you think that they walk among us on Earth? Absolutely. I've met them. So you've met them on Earth? Oh, yes. Because I've heard... Yes, I can, I, can pick out, <laughs> I can pick out a hybrid at 200 yards. Ash, oh, well, you know what? God. I'm glad you brought that up because I was watching an interview with you, and you brought up something very interesting. I'm going to go back a page. It has something to do with blonde-haired and blue-eyed people. I would love to, talk, to have you talk about that. Mm -hmm. Well, when I uh, lecture at UFO symposiums and the like, I generally begin my lectures with three questions that I pose to the audience. And the first one is, uh, do you have blue or green eyes um, or naturally blonde hair? Yes. A great many of the people that are there do. Uh, are you the firstborn or an only child? Many of the hands go up, usually close to two-thirds, sometimes three-quarters of the room. And the third question, I don't get as many hands raised because a lot of people don't know. But the third question I ask is, do you carry the RH negative blood factor? Um, and some people do know they are RH. But um, RH negative appeared, according to all accepted science, uh, appeared in the human bloodline. <coughs> Excuse me. It was uh, not natural to our blood. Uh, but human blood does not mutate. So it was infused into the human bloodline at some point. Now, who infused it, we don't know. Uh, but I think that it is safe to say, looking around at the wide variety of humanity on the planet, the uh, enormous variation in our skin color, in the shapes of our, uh, of our eyes, our hair color, uh, you know, I think that... Uh, I think humanity has just been routinely finagled with. <laughs> and 
and that we're we're star children too. That we're maybe we're some grand experiment for all I know, but I hope someday to know. I hope that we all know someday what our true roots are. Uh, but the American Indians seemed to know, and uh, my connection through my mother to the Cherokee and the Cree uh, tribes is uh, a profound one, and I feel very drawn. I'm like a collector of of stones. Everywhere I go, I pick up rocks. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. Everybody, uh, my mom and all my sisters, we all do it. We don't know why. We just do it. It's just natural uh, to us, and um, and that seems to be part of our Indian heritage. But the Cherokee believe that they're all star children, that we are all here from the stars, put here to have a human experience to learn to love so that we can return home, to learn how to truly love. Uh, and I think that's beautiful, even if it's just a made-up myth. I think it's beautiful, and it's something to aspire to. Uh, I, I believe in, because of my connection uh, with the astral family, the galactic family, the celestial family, that I feel such a, a profound attachment to, and they to me. Uh, I have learned a different kind of love. I have, I have found a higher love. It's not human. It's different. Uh, it's so pure, so crystalline pure, so absolutely unconditional, so completely and utterly trusting that I can't really compare it to anything that I have ever felt for another human being. And I love powerfully. My family will tell you I'm just the epitome of touchy-feely, huggy, kissy, what can I do to help-ish? You know, that's me. That's how I am. I love people powerfully. I always have my whole life. But this is different. This is different. And every time I have a close encounter, I had one last night. Uh, it was, and I got a direct message last night at about one o'clock in the morning. Um, about eight weeks ago, seven weeks ago, on May 24th of this year, I had an event, I had an episode occur um, that changed me and healed me of, uh, of a serious wound that I had, a serious injury that I had. Um, and then after that happened, I was so struck by it. I was so in shock and awe by what had happened. I couldn't do anything else. I couldn't work on my screenplay. I just kind of staggered around the house, not even believing that what had happened happened. Uh, and I kept getting the same message, write it down, write it down, write it down, write it down. You know, it's oh, I'm already working. I'm, you know, I'm three quarters of the way through the second of three screenplay. I've got a job to do here, folks. <laughs> you know what? And, you know, and I was just, I mean, I was not asked. I was told. And, and so I dropped everything after I went through that whole guilt thing for a few hours and just decided this is beyond my control. 
and in the course of three weeks, I wrote the rough draft of a book, and I'm just now finishing the final edit and the format, and it goes to the publisher and into production on Monday. Wow. That's impossible. That is impossible. Writing that a 200-page book is impossible in seven weeks. I don't know how it happened. It just happened. I've been living on coffee and catnap. I'm <laughs> absolutely exhausted, and I guess I'll just sleep when I'm dead, or maybe not. Well, it sounds like you have an, an otherworldly muse, which is a good thing to have. I guess. I don't know, Rich. I'm kind of weird. I don't know if you should even hang out with me. <laughs> you know what? I am proud to call you friend. <laughs> <laughs> I am too. Thank you, John. So the book that you have Both written. Both of you. So sweet. <laughs> oh, thank you. I have a question for you, though. Have you ever physically been taken on a ship? I assume so. Now, what did it appear to be like inside the ship? Do you remember? I don't know. I would assume so, though. I'm sure I've been... And, and I you, feel certain I've been off planet. And you just, um, it's not in your recollection, but you get the sense, but nope. you are hidden. It's hidden from your recollection. No. Okay. Um, and I'll tell you, uh, it was so funny. I was actually in a food line at the Star Wars Symposium one time. And I was talking to someone who asked me the same question. And I said, yeah, I've, I know I've been off planet and where I go is blue on blue on blue on blue, every shade of blue that you could possibly imagine, and then more. Every shade of blue, and I'm flying into the atmosphere, and uh, the thing that I remember most about the beauty of this place is that it has, and my friend Chase turns and looks at me, looks right into my eyes, and she says, two moons. I was like, oh, my God, we come from the same place. That is so cool. That is cool. I know. Yeah, and that's home, and I don't know where it is. I don't know if it's a planet that's been identified yet. I don't know if it's in our, our galaxy, if it's in a, um, yeah, I don't know where it is. All I know is that I've been there. That's the only recollection that I have uh, is coming into this mist, this blue mist. And blue everything, as far as you can see, just blue. Uh, and it was gorgeous. And I remember being able to breathe perfectly well. The atmosphere was fine. I wasn't having to wear any kind of anything, no apparatus. Um, and felt absolutely at home, totally at home. And as I got low enough that I was in the atmosphere that I could look up, into outer space is when I stop and just stare at the two moons that are in completely different orbits. Uh, so only pass each other occasionally. But when they do, uh, apparently it's like a big to-do on the planet. And that's all I can tell you about it. But I think that's pretty cool. I think and it's, it's very not cool a too. Dream. I've, I've been... You know, it, it's not a dream. I've been there. Now, I would think you'd know the difference between a vision, reality, and a dream. There's there's definitely a difference. I have a question for yeah. you. Let's see if there's a connection with this. Years ago, back in the 80s, I worked at a place, and a woman said she was abducted, and she said they inserted a probe into her, and the government was watching her. And I don't know how true that is, but there's a reason I'm bringing this up, because every day 
At 3 o'clock, a black helicopter would fly over the building. Once she quit, the black helicopter stopped flying over. Do you think that you have something asserted into you? And also, do you think that the government is paying attention to you because of all of your contacts? And you're definitely out there. People know what you believe in, what, you, what has happened to you in your life. Do you think that has anything ever happened where somebody's contacted you from the government saying, well, we want to speak with you? The only weird thing that ever happened to me, which is all I needed to know to tell me that they're probably monitoring me regularly, which is fine. I have nothing to hide. I love them, too. You know, I mean, they're just trying to keep our country secure. And, you know, I mean, I I, I, I don't hold anything against anybody. I just speak my truth, even if my voice shakes a little. You know, I just tell the truth of my experiences. That's it. I am harmless. Um, and they know that. I'm sure they know that. I'm a good girl. I don't cause any trouble. No, um, but, you know, but the fact is that uh, I did have uh, an incident just once. Uh, and I was, I had just done an event in San Antonio, I guess probably four or five years ago now. And I was flying to Denver to hop, skip over to Boulder to do some filming on Gaia TV. Used to be Gaiam, G-A-I-A-M, and now it's Gaia. Uh, and I've done, I guess, four, I think four episodes of Open Minds with Regina Meredith, uh, her broadcast on that network. Um, she's a lovely, lovely woman. Anyway, um, I got dropped off at the San Antonio airport, and as I was trying to check my luggage <clears throat> for the flight to... Colorado. Somebody walked up. Uh, I he was dressed officially, had his little wings on and and all of that. Um, grabbed my luggage for me and said, um, "Follow me, Miss Perrin." And I was like, "Well, I haven't even checked in yet. I got to do no. Just follow me." I didn't get a boarding pass. I didn't get scanned. My luggage didn't get scanned. Nothing. I had a suitcase. I had this gentleman uh, carrying my other and my handbag, and he took me through a series of corridors in the airport that spilled out right where I was to board the plane, you know, right on the, you know, the thing that attaches. We came out a door, I rounded the corner, um, and he put me right on the plane. And I just thought that was just, okay, the strangest thing that had ever happened to me at an airport. And he wasn't talkative. I tried to chat with him a little bit. Not really a lot. Not a lot. Nice day, you know, yada, yada. Um, and I tried to ask, you know, why I was receiving this special treatment. Is it because I was TSA approved or, or what? And he didn't answer my question. So I just made small talk and didn't talk much because we were kind of huffing it. It's a long walk to where we went. And I got on the plane, and there were only maybe maybe 50, 60 people on the plane. Uh, I would say at least as many seats were open as were not. It was maybe a half-full flight, which is very unusual these days. But I guess it does happen sometimes. So anyway, I'm sitting there, and of course, uh, they said it was open seating because the flight was, you know, obviously not full. So everybody took a window seat, 
And I'm sitting there, and I've got two seats open right beside me, and I'm about a third of the way up in the plane. And all of a sudden, just before they're getting ready to close the door, a very, very tall, thin woman. Uh, well, not that thin. She was kind of built, like workout built, um, but uh, slender and tall. She looked like a really tall Katie Lang. I mean, she was, you know, tough. And she came walking onto the plane and sat right down beside me, directly beside me with a bajillion seats for her to choose from. And so I tried to be cordial, and I said, hello, my name is, and she just looked at me, and she said, I know who you are. I said, oh, have you read my book? She said, no. <clears throat> um, and I had one of them in my lap, and I said, and what's your name? And she didn't answer me. And I said, I'm an author. And she turned and looked at me, and she said, I work for the federal government. And then she put earbuds in and tuned me out for the rest of the flight. As soon as we landed, she got up and she exited the plane. Hmm. And I consider that, I think that common sense would dictate that that was a relatively passive, aggressive, um, uh, Yeah, well, I think it's almost I, like they want you to know that they know. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, what it, it seems was, like. It was, uh, you know, it wasn't, uh, the word I'm looking for is, me, but it was not a warning. It was, uh, I was just being um, informed that they knew who I was and they knew where I was going and they were watching what I was doing. And I was going to a studio uh, in Boulder, Colorado that puts out some of the most provocative work in the paranormal field and in the field of spirituality and, you know, about ETs. You know, Gaia TV has uh, probably 12 million subscribers worldwide. And it's uh, all about raising human consciousness. And there's a lot of people in our government that don't think that we should think very much about anything because the less we think, the better it is for them. Uh, so, <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, I know exactly uh, what you're saying. I think that was their way of saying, we have you in our eyesight. But the thing about you is that you are extremely open. You don't hide anything. I mean, you can go online and see everything that you're telling me right now. People can probably see somewhere else. So they have no, I mean, obviously you have no worries at all. But like, you can you can investigate me all you want because I have nothing to hide. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I really am truly an open book in that regard. Yeah. Uh, and will stay that way because that's the only way I be I remain a credible source for information. Yeah. You know, if I if I withhold something, if I fail to disclose uh, something that I know, and then it comes out later that I you know had an awareness of it and chose not to share, that would undermine my credibility with my followers they count on me to speak the truth and to impart information virtually uh as fast as i receive it and we thank uh, you for that yeah it's um it's my job now do you think it's up to the government to release documents or the people and why well you know <laughs> i don't hold out a whole lot of faith for the government and they know that um, 
And I'm not even sure that they're necessarily wrong. I don't even know if, I mean, the plethora of information that is in their possession regarding the extraterrestrial phenomenon is beyond your wildest imagination in terms of volume. Uh, if they were ever to release all of it at once, it would be a deluge of information. It would be more than people could handle. It would totally freak them out if people knew. I mean, we have at our disposal, thanks to those that care enough about us to share the information, mm -hmm. uh, we have at our disposal technologies that would virtually eliminate hunger on this planet, would eliminate uh, uh a lack of fresh water would eliminate disease, would, you know, a la Nikola Tesla, be, mean free electricity, free power for everybody on the planet. All of that already exists here. And either it was back-engineered or it was gifted to us, but it has not been put into use. It's not implemented because of greed, because of our, you know, the human proclivity to want to make as much money and rape this earth as much as they possibly can until there's not a drop of oil left. And then suddenly, poof, voila, we have all of this alternative energy source. Oh, and you're going to have to pay for this too because we own it. You know, that's where we are as a planet. Yeah. Uh, and it's base. It's, you know, fundamentally uh, flawed in terms of thinking. Uh, you know, there are two separate distinct mindsets that work simultaneously opposing forces uh, in conflict on this planet. And one of them is all for me. The rest of you are on your own. And the other is we are all in this together, folks. And the chasm between the two is so wide, so pervasively ugly, so vitriolic, so hate ridden that we can't we can't build a bridge big enough to cross that gap. Um, and I'm speaking big picture humanity here, not just what's going on in the United States, which is, is crazy enough, but I'm talking about the entire globe. But I do see a wave of change coming, and I think that it's a, it's a relatively short time now before enough people will see the big picture to start to really make the changes that are necessary for us to preserve ourselves as a species on this very beautiful rock curling through space that we have uh, usurped and uh, defiled in every conceivable way. Now, do you think that some of these inventions that we've had over the years have come from the aliens? Yes. Yes, do you, I do. Do you and have... I think it's incredibly ironic that, you know, the back engineering that occurred decades ago that have provided us with Silicon Valley and, and cute little chips that fit into phones that are smarter than us. And the ultimate irony is that nobody's looking up into the skies from once that information came because their faces are planted in the phone <laughs> and it, it's it's a shame you know because i don't know well i actually do know a whole lot of people that sky watch but i don't understand why everybody in the world 
isn't out looking up all the time. I mean, I find it the most captivating, most mesmerizing view imaginable. And it's not that I ignore nature on the planet. I love it. I live in paradise. I live on a beautiful lake in a gorgeous town, and I'm a very lucky woman, and I count my blessings every single day that I have the opportunity to live, you know, in, in warmth and bliss down in central Florida. It is uh, a lovely way to spend my, the later years of my life. Um, but I will also say that it's also an excellent vantage point for looking at the sky. It's big sky country down here. And over that lake, you can see forever. It's just incredible. So, you know, I think that we have to be grounded and find our balance between head in the cloud, clouds and feet on the ground. Uh, and I, uh, I strike that balance most of the time, but not always. <laughs> well, unfortunately, I think what the big problem is is that there are a lot of closed-minded people, and I think some of that comes from fear. They don't want to admit that there might be something else out there because, one, they're afraid, or two, they're going to think, well, people are going to think I'm crazy. For me— Well, you know, that fear was propagated deliberately. It was. You know, it, it was. And that's part of my message, Rich. It, you know, don't be afraid. Be not afraid. There's nothing to fear here. Well, that's good to know. That's, um, but I think, unfortunately, most people, and I agree with you, I think that that was propaganda. They're like, oh, no, that doesn't exist. You know, there's just a couple crazy people that are saying that because they want you to think that because they don't want you to know what's out there. Now, uh, another question I had for you is uh, let's go back to the Egyptian era. Do you think that they had anything to do with the pyramids? Yeah, I think that's self-evident. And I don't care what uh, – I also think the pyramids are a lot older than than they've been claimed to be. Hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think um, I think Eric Von Donegan has his finger on the pulse of that. Uh, you know, he did the math, and the according to his figures, uh, based on – the science, the global science of world population at the time that the pyramids were supposedly being built, there weren't enough people, not only in Egypt, to build those pyramids. There weren't enough people on the planet to build those pyramids. So Plus. I think it's ludicrous to suspect that, you know, slaves with whips being um, slammed across their shoulders were carrying 2,000-pound rocks up the side of a stone mountain to create these, you know, magnificent edifices that clearly uh, are otherworldly. Yeah, well, I mean, it definitely sounds ludicrous when you when you say it like that. Like, oh yeah, two thousand pounds, all right. You get this one, I'll get the other rock. Yeah. And, um, yeah. yeah so I, I agree with that. And so, how far back? Do you think that they they go the extraterrestrials? Do you did they ever tell you like how long they've been in the solar system? Yes, forever, forever. Wow. So do you think that had you know like how? Um, I mean, I'm not sure what your beliefs are in religion wise, but I mean with evolution with uh, with humans, do you think that there was an evolution with the aliens? I don't have a specific religion. I do not espouse any particular religion, although I have studied 
every single religion on the planet. The only way you can get a degree in philosophy. Yeah. Um, and the more I studied, the less I could relate. Uh, if I have any religion, at, I'm, I, I consider myself a very deeply spiritual person. Uh, and I'm in pretty much constant contact with source. Yeah. Uh, I pray regularly, uh, you know, if that's a word you want to use for it, or meditate or whatever. Um, I just talk. I mean, yeah. I just, I, I feel a very strong connection and I feel a, a purpose for me being here. And I, I couldn't say that for the first 50 years of my life. Well, I agree with I you. I really couldn't. Because this is my belief. I think that there's definitely something out there. And if I told you about my life, how I was given the last rites three times, they said I would never walk, never talk, and different things that happened to me. I definitely know that there is something out there. But for me, religion itself, in my opinion, is man-made to create order. That's just what I believe. So I think that I believe in spirituality, but religion is another story. So I'm, I'm with you in the way you're thinking. Yeah, I call religion crowd control. <laughs> no, I agree with you. Organized religion is crowd control. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and, and it doesn't mean I don't have, I mean, oh gosh, you know, when I think about how many uh, people on the planet, you know, there are billions of people on this planet that have a solidified belief system, whether it be Christians, Jews, uh, Muslims, and, and a variety of other belief systems. Um, you know, even being an atheist is a belief system. It's a belief that there is no God. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I, I, I really do look big picture about that. You know, the Pleiadians uh, call God prime creator um and they're from the uh the star system that we know commonly as the seven sisters they're also uh known as the tall white um very thin very uh pale white gauzy skin um actually quite beautiful very beautiful uh and they're spiritually ascended light beings and they have uh, a very profound connection to source and they call it prime creator. And they also say that that's what we envision as God, that, you know, there is a, a source of an energy source in the universe that creates all things. And that's what they refer to. So I think it's fascinating that there are other races that are zipping around the universe that have their own belief systems as well. Um, I think that's probably common to um, <clears throat> all all being. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, Lisa, do you have any questions for Andrea? Oh, I'm just listening and taking it in. I don't have a question at this time. Well, there is a lot to take in. Yeah. Well, actually, I do. I did want to talk more about the book that you are just ready to. That's getting published next week, Andrea. Um, is it? You mentioned that you were compelled to write this book very quickly after an incident that happened just before Memorial Day this year. Is there anything you can tell us about the book, or would you just prefer to get it published without giving too many details? It is um, It's a very personal treat. It's the first thing I've ever written uh, in first-person narrative. Uh, it's as though when you read it, you'll feel as though 
I'm speaking directly to you mm-hmm. as okay. an individual. And uh, essentially, that's what I'm doing. It's uh, like a love letter to my readers. And it details uh, a lot of the things uh, that I've seen, experiences that I've had, uh, deals with, you know, my baby sister April died last year, and it fractured me. It fractured me. It laid me waste. Uh, I didn't know if I would stay in the field. I didn't know if I would go back out on the road. Um, I just shut down. And then something truly miraculous, I consider to be miraculous, happened to me. And it tells the story of that uh, intervention on my behalf. And then again, last May, I had another recent encounter that um, took me to a higher level of consciousness and understanding about my connection. No, can you tell us about the incident? Or do you want to uh, let, let people read the book? Well, you know, the book contains uh, a great deal of information uh, in a lot of respects. Uh, but the incident itself that happened um, to me was, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, in my own bedroom. And I felt I was laying in bed. It was about probably 2.30 in the morning. I'd had an interview earlier and had too much coffee. <laughs> so I was awake. And I finally went to bed around 12 or 12.30 and had my television on because I cannot sleep in the dark. I have to have light. I have to have sound around me. It's the only thing that will shut my brain down so that I can sleep because it seems to short-circuit my own thought process. So I'm laying there, and I'm absolutely transfixed on an interview that I'm listening to, but I must have appeared asleep because my eyes were closed and I lay diagonally across my bed um, and let my feet kind of dangle off the end. I have no fear of something you know, reaching up from underneath. So, and I'm tall, so I just kind of let them hang off and that way I don't have as many hot flashes during the night, and, you know. It's just life is, you know, at, at the stage of life, that's life. And <laughs> so um, I was laying there and I couldn't, um, I couldn't discern what it was, but I felt something very, very heavy uh, pressed down on the bottom corner of the bed over my feet. And because for an instant I thought it might be my sister visiting me, I didn't move. I just felt it. Um, And then within a moment or so, I realized that there is no spirit that powerful uh, that could have exerted that much pressure. Uh, The whole corner of the bed sunk down, was compressed uh, downward. Um, And then I felt uh, an incredible, incredible, amount of heat uh, in my feet, like they were on fire, like somebody had taken a blowtorch to them from the inside out, and it didn't hurt at all, not at all. Uh, The pressure that was being exerted against my feet and my legs, it felt like I was being lowered into a sarcophagus 
or one was you know, a half of what of sheath of what was being raised up over my body, and it felt like hot, pressurized liquid, and I didn't move. I don't think I even breathed as it slowly rose up my to my torso, and when it got just below my rib cage, I had a moment of panic because I thought that they were mistakenly taking me while I was awake. And I didn't want to go anywhere while I was conscious. Wow. I didn't want whatever that was to go directly over my head. I didn't know if I could breathe whatever it was that was happening. Now, do you think that was the paranormal, or do you think it was extraterrestrials? Yeah, I know it was extraterrestrial. I know it was. You... So uh, what happened was I, I decided to just in a... a um, knee-jerk reaction uh, raised up on the corner of my um, on my elbow and turned and looked down expecting to see something on my body because I was laying above the blanket and there was nothing. I saw nothing, but I could see that the corner of the bed was compressed still with a very heavy weight. And as soon as I rose up on my elbow, the, the fraction of a second when I moved it stopped as soon as I moved and began to slowly recede at precisely the pace that it had come up it went back down uh, and then when it came off my feet the whole corner of the bed came up you... and I just sat in my bed and looked down at <laughs> my body and what just happened to me <laughs> and then suddenly i was exhausted beyond measure just beyond measure i laid my head down and i didn't wake up until the crack of noon the next day and when i did the severe injury to my low back had been healed all the swelling that had accompanied it in my left knee and my left ankle and my foot uh the tendon everything that was injured in my body was healed completely wow. healed and I had been crawling around for weeks just hoping sleeping as much as I could hoping against hope that this injury would heal itself as it always had in the past and it just wasn't happening and I needed some help and it arrived wow you know what's funny years ago I went to a uh, psychic and I was told that I have aliens watching over me as well I mean I've never seen anything I've never felt anything like you but I was actually told that from a psychic. She goes, oh, I definitely see extraterrestrials. So I guess what, what I'm trying to say with that is, obviously, you can see what's coming to you. Or what, but I, I'm sure there's a lot of other people out there that have experiences and they probably don't think about it or don't even realize what's happening to them when it does happen. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Now, you mentioned it's earlier. okay because, you know, even a sighting that they don't process consciously, they process subconsciously. Yeah. Now, you mentioned earlier that the, they, there are also negative forces out there. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because I know that you want to keep your distance away from them, and you know what? I don't blame you. But Yeah, I don't even really talk about them. Okay. I really don't. I mean, and it's, you know, it's not that I'm saying, no, I won't discuss that. It's just that I don't want to give them any energy. Yeah, no, I you definitely know, they, agree with that. 
I was just curious. You know, of what... now we've got beings that care and love, care about us and love us so much that they're willing to come across the universe to intervene on our behalf simply by making their presence known around this planet. You know, they can't. One of the chapters, excuse me a second. One of the chapters of my book is a story that if you've watched any of my videos, you've probably heard me tell before. But it, um, it's a very important one because I had a, an incident one night where I was shaken uh, awake. And it was about 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, which I normally wake up then anyway. And I have for decades. That's, I wake up then, and I usually go outside and um, look up at the stars and look up at the sky and have a little tete-a-tete with uh, my family and my friends. And then I come back in and I go back soundly to sleep. Um, and that's been happening since at least my early 40s anyway. Uh, so one night, uh, a few years ago, I was basically called outside and I was aggravated because I had just gone to sleep at around midnight, maybe later. And I didn't want to get up yet, <laughs> but <laughs> I didn't have an option. Um, so I went up and I, w I got up and I went outside and kind of, you know, looked up at the, the sky and just said, what? What is it? You know, I was I was a little agitated, and um, I didn't I did not see a flash in the sky. I did not see anything in the sky. I saw the flash in my mind, and it was a bright, vivid image um, of when I was twelve years old. We had it was the first spring that we were at the farm. And my mom and dad had taken us to a chicken farm uh, across the border in Connecticut so that uh, we could get some fresh eggs from them. And while we were in there, the farmer let us go into the hatchery where the baby chicks were being born. And I got very excited. I was standing there with my mother. And I reached out to crack one of the eggs open so that I could see the baby chick being born. And my mom grabbed my hand and, and retracted it and said, oh, no, honey, you can't crack the egg open. You can't help the baby be born or it will die. And, you know, I went into meltdown. I was like, oh, my God, I almost killed a baby, you know, because I was ignorant. I didn't know. I didn't know. And she was very gentle with me about it, but explained in no uncertain terms that if I were to crack that egg open and help that baby be born, that it wouldn't live. And that... I hadn't thought about that, I think, since it happened. And suddenly that was the image that flooded my mind. And so, exhausted, I come back in and I write a treatise called The Chicken and the Egg, which I have included in the book. Hmm. Uh, and the gist of it is that they can come from everywhere and anywhere uh, to help us, but they have to do it from a distance. Because we are the chick and we, and the amount of, we have to save ourselves is what I'm trying to say to you. We have to birth ourselves. Yeah. Um, we are each in our own individual little shell and we're all stuffed in cartons that are very dark and that's our 3D world. 
And so it's time now to lift the lid and to let the light of day in and for each of us to peck our way out of our own predicament. And that is our limited view and our limited understanding of the world that we're in and our place in the world and our world's place in the cosmos. Well, I think a big thing is, so, is that most people, Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, what no, I wanted to say okay. was that, um, is that I think, you know, they always say that babies, animals, and people that are babies and animals are the most open to seeing spirits and probably ETs because there's nothing saying, oh, they don't exist. There's no negativity and they just see it. I think the same thing with you is you are so open and and they're, they're so welcoming that they want to come to you because you're like their vessel to come into you. And so you can uh, spread the word and let them not, let everybody know that it's not all bad out there and there's a lot of good out there. And yes, they do exist. That's what it seems like to me. Yes. Well, you know, it's, it's been very interesting because uh, I received a message uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, you must call your ship. And I was like, my ship? What do you mean my ship? Or your ship? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently not. Uh, so now I call my ship. <laughs> Captain Perrin. I, I like that. You know, I mean, if they're willing to share, I'll call them mine. You know, I'm feeling pretty rich these days. I got my own space vessel. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I, I don't know what that means. I cannot discern what that means. All that I know is that I have been told in no uncertain terms, in a massive download that just altered my trajectory entirely, that I am to call my ship, uh, to call in, you know, basically to call in the reserve to help me write this book, to help me take this step, to help me in my spiritual ascension, to help me heal others, to help me do my part to heal the world. Uh, and you know, by every admission, it's a small part that I play. But if each one of us does our part to raise the vibration of this planet and to, you know, tap into a higher frequency, not only of understanding, but of sympathy and empathy and kindness and love and a, a sense of unity. I'm not saying you have to love your axe-murdering neighbor down the street. <laughs> you know, that's not what I'm saying here. I'm I'm a pragmatist and a realist, I am very well aware that there are people on this planet that I never want to know. I've met some people I never want to know again, you know, and it doesn't mean that I can't love them, capital love. I just can't small love them, you know, uh, lowercase love them. Um, I can respect their existence. I can you know, wish them the best in this incredible journey called life, but it doesn't mean that I need to expose myself to their toxicity. It doesn't mean they're at an entirely different place in their mindset than I am, and I can't lower my vibration by taking in their negative energy. So I'm very selective who I uh, engage with, who I communicate with, uh, what I watch um, on television or what I listen to for music, what I'm taking in 
in terms of energy, vibration, stimuli is monitored uh, deliberately so that I can filter out anything that threatens to diminish me in any way rather than lift me up. And I think that when all of us get to a point, whether it be through meditation, whether it be through prayer, whether it be through uh, a realization of oneness, whether it be through uh, an acknowledgement of the existence of extraterrestrials, whether it be being touched by spirit, whatever it is that triggers that opening, that springs that lock, it's at that moment that we realize we've had the key all along. And once we understand that we are the point of disclosure, that we are uh, each individually the ones responsible for saving ourselves, we work in tandem at that point to lift the vibration and save the planet. And that's really where we are now. This is about saving the planet. This is about saving the life of a planet and if it doesn't survive we don't survive well and i do we want don't to have a whole lot of time left to make the changes necessary to alter the trajectory of the force that we are on which is perilous well what i wanted to say was i've met you several times twice at the paracon convention which is a paranormal convention in rhode island I also met you a mystic, and I have seen you in action, and I think that everything that has happened to you has made you such a great motivational speaker, and I've actually seen people after you you spoke, and I can see the difference you make in their lives, and that you've done so many great things just from what I can see and also what I've seen online, so I am so glad that they picked you to be the vessel to let everybody know, because I think I've seen just a very small, minuscule amount of good that you've done and I know how much other things that you do that I don't see. So I personally want to thank you for everything that you've done to help people and continue to help people. And your empathy and sympathy is just overflows and it's very contagious. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's contagious, but it's not disease. It's de- it's, it's ease. It's comfort. Uh, it's healing. Uh, I I don't know why. I'm sure you've seen it happen, but for some reason, people walk into my arms and I embrace them and they sob. And I think that's because uh, I function as a conduit. I can take their pain, but I don't keep it. It just dissipates right out of me. It's nothing that I hang on to, but I have this inordinate ability to drain the sadness out of people. And to take on their burdens for them and then just shed them uh, by the side of the road so that both of us are lighter when the encounter is over. Uh, And I consider that um, proclivity of mine (laughs) the the best work that I do on earth. Um, it's, It's marvelous for me to go to these events and, you know, interact with hundreds if not thousands of people over the course of a weekend and know that I've made a little bit of difference in their lives. I've answered a question that was a pressing question that, you know, they needed clarity on. Uh, and even if my answer was, I don't know, <laughs> that in itself is some clarity, you know, because if I don't know, probably nobody does, you know. So, um, 
it's uh, it's a privilege, it's an honor, it's a pleasure, and it's exhausting. Absolutely <laughs> exhausting. Well, the reason I is mean, because they don't let you get any sleep. They're always waking no. you up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really is uh, mind bending. And and when I'm when I'm I'm the ET point person at the Upper Peninsula, Michigan Paracon in Sault Ste. Marie at the end of August, and uh, we're taking a group of people outside. According to Brad, um, uh, we're going to an undisclosed location where there's no residual light. Uh, and I, you know, I don't know where that is. If we're being dragged off into the woods, if Bigfoot's going to be there, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't put anything past these guys, Tim and Brad. Oh my God, they're so uh, they're so great. Uh, the promoters, this is their show, and uh, it's uh, it's going to be uh, interesting because when I get a large group out under the stars, uh, that's when it becomes most intense. That's yeah. when uh, things start really popping and people start crying and people start cheering and applauding and laughing and uh, the whole energy changes. It's this huge invitation from this mass of humanity around me asking to have contact with our brethren in the sky. It is absolutely awe-inspiring and it changes people's lives. Well, Lisa and I, I wish we could it. make it. So Lisa and I wish we could make it, but unfortunately, it's a little too far for us. But maybe yeah. if you do it at the uh, Rhode Island Paracon, we'll be the first ones in line. <laughs> and actually, well, I just did. I was just there a couple of weeks ago at the Ocean State Paracon. Oh, no, and, I know that, uh, but I meant the I'm um, looking at the sky. Oh, yeah, we did that. Oh, you we did? did that. We got some, yeah, we got some great photographs. I wasn't photographing them. I was, you know, busy uh, engaged with them. Um, but uh, everybody that was out there, I must have had probably 50 or 60 people. Hmm. Uh, it was after we had shut down for the day and most everybody had gone home. But there were, you know, a small group that came over and asked if I would please. And so uh, we got some dinner. We went over to see Beth Sheba Sherman's gravestone. Uh, hung out for a while, and then closer to dusk, um, I took everybody out to the pond, and uh, it was um, eye-popping, fabulous. We had a wonderful time. I can imagine. Um, you brought up something. You brought up Bigfoot. Now, I've heard this theory. There are some theories out there that Bigfoot is actually an alien. W what's your belief on oh, that? I think if it exists, that it absolutely is, that it's interdimensional. Otherwise, wouldn't we have, you know, found some type of real physical evidence by now or a carcass or something? If it was, you know, an organic being on no. the planet, there would be some evidence of its existence here. Uh, I also think that, uh, you know, we have some visionaries among us or people that have been uh, privy to information that the rest of us are not. And one of them is George Lucas, uh, you know, the creator of. Uh, Star Wars and Chewbacca I think is probably modeled after what we you know a cryptozoologist call Sasquatch or Bigfoot uh, and so I think that lends some credence to at least the possibility that it's just simply another race that pops in for a visit from time to time because we still have a few really nice forests left on the planet.
Hmm, very interesting. Now, I, well, I have a story that I want you to explain because I heard you tell this before, and I think it's very, very interesting, and it actually has to do, deal with animals. It was your experience at the Black Swan Inn. Oh, the spider? Yes. Oh, my God, that was so freaky. That was absolutely freaky. Um, yeah, it um, it was pouring. Uh, it was pouring like I've never seen rain, rain, ever. And uh, I was there with uh, Joe Rivera, who is the owner of the Black Swan Inn. And we were standing out on the veranda of this, you know, magnificent antebellum home. And all of a sudden, I looked down on the stairs. There was three stairs going down, you know, kind of the <clears throat> the sweeping open staircase. And there was a few steps up on either side that took you up onto the main level of the veranda. And these enormous, enormous, huge, huge black spiders started crawling out from under the foundation of the house as it was flooding and coming up onto the, the veranda, onto the patio area, climbing the stairs with what, what strength they had left. And we're standing there going, no way. She said, Andrea, I have owned this place like forever. I have never, ever seen spiders like this at this house, not ever. I said, Joe, I believe you. I said, I don't know what these are, but this is really creepy. And we watched them. Um, honestly, I mean, they were as big around as as baseballs, you know, in the circumference of a baseball. They were huge. Wow. And, you know, I'm not arachnophobic per se. I'm not a huge fan of spiders, but I also find them beautiful and, you know, with their delicate legs and, you know, they're a fascinating uh, creature on the planet. I don't hang out with them, but, you know, I don't hurt them and I have respect for them. Like I have respect for everything that lives on the planet. <laughs> so anyway, one of them crawls up close to my feet and I'm backing away from it. And all of a sudden... It flips over, and after a couple of minutes, its legs retract in on itself, and it died, and it had drowned. And uh, my heart broke. I just, my heart broke. I was like, oh, my God. It just struggled all the way up the stairs to get where it was dry and safe, and it didn't make it, and it died. And I said, I looked down at it and I kind of gave it just the slightest nudge with my, the tip of my slipper and, and it didn't move at all. It was gone. And Joe, you know, she's as tender hearted as I am. She's like, oh, you know, that's a shame. Um, not that I really wanted them here and I certainly don't want them in the house, but you know, God, when you see something that big die, it's a little traumatic, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, I just looked at it. And I just, I said a little prayer for it. And, and I know that sounds stupid, but I did. Um, and, you know, just kind of gave it my energy to go to spider heaven. I don't know. I just felt bad. And I said a few words on its behalf. And a couple of minutes later, it came back to life. Wow. It just... And Joe was standing there because we were mo monitoring the others. You know, they were still, they were crawling up on the veranda. We couldn't throw them off the veranda because then they would surely drown. 
because the rain was coming down so hard. So she was just kind of monitoring where they went. Um, and meanwhile, I'm just standing there just having a cigarette, and I'm, I'm watching the rain pour. And all of a sudden, I see a little movement out of the side of my eye. And, and quite a long time had passed. This was uh, an unbelievable Texas storm. <clears throat> and I saw a little movement out of the side of my eye, and I turned and I looked, and uh, the spider was opening its legs. And I'm like, Joe, get over here now. And she walked up to me and she said, that's impossible. That was dead. That spider was dead. I said, no, Joe, I know it was. We both checked it. It was dead. She's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And it opened its legs. And then it, it tipped its body over and walked right up in front of me like, I was maybe two feet away from it and it walked right up in front of me and just stopped right in front of my foot. And I looked down at it and I just said, welcome back. I hope you have a happy life. You can't come in the house. <laughs> wow. Very uh, an inspirational story. Andrea, before we leave, because I have so many other things I want to talk to you about, but um, I want to give you a little bit of time to plug what you have. I know you have three books out on the ghosts and you also have a new book coming out. So I'd like to uh, have you plug that a little bit. Oh, okay. Well, my trilogy, which is the true story behind the conjuring, the conjuring bearing absolutely no resemblance to the true story. Uh, you know, if you really want to know what happened, uh, in our farmhouse with my family growing up, uh, then please avail yourselves of house of darkness, house of light volumes, one, two, and three, you must read them in order, or you will be completely and utterly lost. <laughs> it's a cast of characters, uh, feels like thousands, some living, mostly dead. Um, and then I also wrote uh, a book with my co-author, George R. Lopez, who I did my radio show with, The World Awakening. And this was his idea, so I can brag about it. Uh, it's called In a Flicker. Um, if you're an aficionado of Jack the Ripper, it's a must read. If you are faint of, uh, faint of heart or weak of stomach, don't bother. Um, honestly, it's, it's a very, very emotional, very gut wrenching, difficult read. Uh, the worst of it coming directly from the annals of British history, um, but it is a very intense, compelling story uh, that will take you around the world and out of this world and back in history. Uh, and it's called In a Flicker, and anybody that's interested in knowing more about it can find it at inaflickernovel.com. Uh, it's available, as my other books are, at Amazon, which is the fastest and least expensive way to buy a book in the United States. So I encourage everybody to go get them there. And then, of course, my new book coming out. I'm sorry to cough. I'm having an allergic reaction to life, I think. Um, <laughs> uh, my new book is uh, A Wonder to Behold, Guideposts for Intergalactic Engagement with Humanity, which is a long subtitle, but it's an accurate description of what it is. Uh, and it's, you know, not that huge a read because it's so jam-packed that you really don't want, you know, I don't want to overdo it for people. It's a lot to take in. 
Um, but I should have that. Uh, it goes into production next week. Uh, I should have them with me up in Sault Ste. Marie at the end of August and uh, will also be available online. First as soft cover, and then later, after all the formatting is done, be available for all e-readers. And then later on, uh, as demand dictates, um, I'll publish it as a hardcover as well. Well, I can so personally say... Uh, if you want to follow me, follow me on Facebook uh, or my fan page, The Buttercup Brigade. We're the good deed doers, the rose-colored glasses wearers, um, and uh, a really nice, soft, cushy place in cyberspace to come hang out. Um, or my personal page uh, at Andrea Perrin or A World Awakening or House of Darkness, House of Light or in a Flickr. I have five pages on Facebook, which I don't keep up with nearly as well as I should. But <laughs> thank you for visiting anyway. I appreciate it. And when I do put up a post, it's a really good one. So just hang in there. Um, and other than that, as soon as I'm done publishing this book, I throw myself right back into the second screenplay. Uh, and we should start shooting our movies, I would believe, next year. I could hardly wait. So all I can basically say is one word. Wow. <laughs> what a fun, inspiring, and interesting interview. I just want to let you know you are welcome back on this show anytime. I would love to talk thank to you about so many other things. And I also want to thank my co-host, Lisa, for being here. Sure. My pleasure. So, thank you, Lisa. <laughs> So thank you very much, Andrea, and until next time, see you in the Claws Corner.